Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big Jim is wearing his heel. You know, I remember the way we were writing about Amy Winehouse, for instance, sat massively uncomfortably with me. I remember saying in the office on almost a daily basis, I'm worried that she's going to die. And we have to really think about how we write about this. Ultimately, you've got to make a decision whether you're comfortable with it or you're not as a journalist. And I managed 15 years, I think it was, 14, 15 years, and I, I had to get out because I, I wasn't comfortable with it, Jim. Simple as that. So I lost my voice, right? I couldn't speak. And I lost my job as a result of it. My contract ran out of Radio X. And they're not going to give a new contract to an injured soldier like the same thing that would happen in rugby. Woody Harrelson's there and Madonna turned up, just gate-crashed the party and Bob Geldof was there and Russell Brand. And... On this episode, I take a break from rugby to talk to a fellow Scot who's been involved in the entertainment and celebrity industry for years. Some of his stories are absolutely wild. It's the wonderful Gordon Smart. Right, Gordon, we're on. We could have done this in Scotland. I know. We've both flown down for this. I wanted to show you the setup. Think of the size of your carbon footprint. Just your oh, normal footprint. <laughs> I know. That is top of the minute. But how good is it to come down to London to be able to do it here? I'm, what I'm trying to say is thank you because you've made the effort to come down as yeah. a vibe, but it's not yeah. an effort for me because I want you on my show. Yeah. Which... Again, you're showing off, mate. It's what you did. Oh, it's weird because I like it's not an interview because I want to chat to you, and people won't necessarily know my audience won't know who you mm. are. Your audience obviously do, but it's not an interview because for me, you're one of the best interviewers around. Oh, thanks, Jim. That means a lot. I know. So, yeah. I, I was going to do an intro for you in, in terms of what you do and what you've done. Do you want to give a snapshot and then we can just kind of go from there? You want me to introduce myself? Is that like the guy that says, um, he, he needs no introduction and folk are going. Well, he does, because I don't know who he is. <laughs> Just in case, because they're right. hearing Scottish accent, they're thinking, okay. is this a Scottish has, rugby legend? Has Jim met a guy in the pub who once played rugby <laughs> with 25 years ago that he's trying to give a leg up to? I'm Gordon Smart. I'm a broadcast, struggling podcaster, uh, an amateur TV presenter, uh, a novice journalist. And I'm just trying to scrape a living right on the coattails of the various well-known people that I know. I've done about 20-odd years now in the media, Jim, and I still get misidentified as people who went before me in tabloid newspapers. Every now and again, somebody says, are you that guy Dominic Mohan from The Sun? Which is like a, a kick in the plums. Um, and then the new one is, oh, can you get me a picture of your mate Martin Comston? Can you get him to do a video for my best man speech? Do you mind asking Martin if he can give me some line of duty and say, is it coming back? So that's kind of been... My life, really. I was When I was growing up, I was the doctor's son. Then I married quite a well-known guy in Scotland's daughter. Um, so trying to be known for your own thing 
is a bit of a challenge in, in the world we live in. But um, I'm, I'm scraping a living, Jim. It's been a, a bumpy few years, right? The last three years or so, which I've moaned to you about on plenty of occasions. But it feels like we're just beginning to get back on top, just about. Well, it's lovely to have you in. And when I look at the stuff that you've done before, it's almost like, Jim, what do you want to do now away from rugby? Mm-hmm. I look at what you've done and what you're doing. I'm like, there's a bit of the dream scenario. Yeah. Interviewing, chatting to some absolute legends. And this for me is one, a bit of nostalgia because mm-hmm. of the people that you've spoken to. So we're going to go through the archives mm-hmm. of some absolute <laughs> legends, but yeah. also a little bit away from rugby, right? Because that's been the foundations of what I've been doing. And the appetite is to move away and talk to interesting people, mm-hmm. like-minded people, and people who are, I perceive as very good in the stuff that they've done, which is... Oh, cheers, Jim. You can tell. You. So that's me it's talking to you, but I wanted you to kind of yeah. give a snapshot because it's like, I could sit here and say, you've done this and you've done that. Let's go back a, a little bit. Let, let's just stick with this, actually. Yeah. When I listen to different things and I watch different shows, I don't watch a huge amount of TV now because I've got four kids and because I'm traveling, so I listen to podcasts. And I've been listening to your podcast, Rest, Restless Natives. Natives. Yeah. And you're on there with Martin Compton, also known as D- D.I. D.I., Steve not Arnett. D.C.I., Steve Arnett. You won't like that. You don't, know. don't downgrade them. I know. Both <laughs> yeah. Scotsmen both broad accents i find yours and maybe this is because i've got an english more english more english accent an english yeah. accent easier to digest i love his because he's got this like broad glaswegian yeah. kind of edge to it so i like that but you've got a lovely kind of i don't know whether that's legit or whether you put it on but you've got a nice tone <laughs> of funny. scottish accent i think we've all got a wee bit of a chameleon in us when we speak right because you'll change that. Listen, I've, I've heard definitely you, changed. I've heard you shouting at referees. <laughs> I used to find it really entertaining when you would say, sir, and offer that respect to them. Um, but, you know, you, you speak differently when you're playing sport than you do when you're at work than when you're broadcasting. If I'm on Five Live, I'll probably speak in a slightly posher voice. If I'm doing Good Morning Britain, I do have a, a bit of a broadcast voice. But then when I'm with Martin, who's from Inverclyde, he's from Greenock, and he is really broad west coast I mean you'd get really upset if you said Glasgow I'm not from Glasgow I'm from Greenock man um, but my accent I, I'm from Edinburgh I was born in Edinburgh my parents were fifers and I grew up in a no man's land really called Kinross which is Perth and Kinross but it used to be Tayside so between Dundee and uh, Dunfermline so it's not quite Fife it's not quite Edinburgh but it's an east coast accent and I went to a lovely state school Kinross High School and I think everybody sounded Kind of like Ewan McGregor. is uh, the, He's from Creef, which is in the million miles. He's got a great accent. I'm on mm. the same books as him for voiceovers, right? Which is magic, because he doesn't do a lot. So everything that he turns down, I get. I'm happy with that. I'll, I'll quite happily ride on his coattails. But that's class. And I can't wait to talk to you about all these different people. But on the accents, mm-hmm. and this is me. I was chatting to the lady um, from the Spotify studio. She's from Coventry, right? Yeah. That's where I grew up. You're a cov, yeah. I'm a cov lad. So mm-hmm. this is the accent of a Coventrian, as they call it. Yeah. And there's a famous song. In our Coventry homes, in our Coventry homes, they speak with an accent exceedingly rare. You want a cathedral? We've got one to spare <laughs> in our Coventry homes. So we don't really have an accent, but in the yeah. media, I think that this potentially is a good thing. This is me talking myself up, but I look at other accents. Scot- Scottish can... Divide opinion a little mm-hmm. bit. We mentioned yours and Martin's. I love Martin's as well because it's a bit edgy. Yours mm-hmm. a bit posher. Struggled with Brummies. And that was just down the road from Coventry yeah. until Peaky Blinders came out. And then it's like, actually, that's fucking yeah. really cool. Really yeah. cool accent. Liverpool. Struggle with Liverpool. And this is controversial as well. Irish accents. Jim. 
Jim, you need to be more vanilla here, mate. Like you can't nail your colours to I'm the like, master. I'm like, I'm straight, <laughs> no, straight for it. This you've is, got to love everybody. This is why I've got you in. You've got to love everyone, right? See the East Midlands recently. So you've got you know the Kasabian boys, Leicester lads. They are Leicester lads. They've got lads. they've got a prop. They have a cob, don't they? Rather than a surge or a bap surge. Yeah, great. I think it's a My great. Mate, yeah, mate, lived next door to him. Good. Was that a counter Counterstorp or Great Great Glen? Great Glen. Is your mate Inglebert Humperdinck? <laughs> Because he's his neighbour, isn't he? I, I, well, I think this is when Serge was younger. Right, so right, I right. don't even think it was Great Glen. It was... Counterstorpe, I think it was, yeah, I'm sure. Counterstorpe as well. Yeah, it but was, he, that East Midlands accent, I think also Matt Smith, he's... Uh, was he in Nottingham, I think? I tell you who's been good for these Midlands is Shane Meadows. So all this is England stuff with that Nottingham accent. I thought that was class. You know, all those actors, like Vicky McClure, I think her accent's brilliant. See, look, you're just talking everyone up. I've just absolutely rinsed people from them. Liverpool but that, that, like, and Ireland. I th- I've got a thing for Scouse accents. I think he's great. You know, like especially the Wirral. We worked with a great girl, Danielle Lawler, and her uncle played for Liverpool, Chris Lawler. And I remember her sitting there and everyone would come up and go, say Jersey Dudek. Jersey Dudek. I love it. Oh, I can't. You can't have it. I, well, I'm a big football fan, so I can right. deal with like your Gerrards. Rooney to a degree he's a bit rough yeah so is Gerard a bit but as in I like Gerard's yeah. accent but in listening in media yeah I think you need to have a voice that is yeah. kind of a bit softer to I'll, consume that's not overbearing I'll have to send you I've got a great clip because I interviewed Rooney quite a lot and he, he's a, I think he's a lovely boy right but you'd have to cut out the mm, 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 mm. So my producer at XFM did an edit of an interview I had with him and there was about eight minutes of him going mm, mm, mm. <laughs> It's class. But I really love Rooney. I think he's a brilliant boy. You've interviewed some unbelievable people. Where do we start? Uh, we, I was going to say, let's go with the best and the worst, but let's just name drop some of them because when mm-hmm. we went for a beer, I'm asking you about all these people. And yeah. more recently, I don't know whether it popped up on my algorithm because there was talk of me mm-hmm. interviewing you and then all of a sudden on YouTube, Mad it pops that, up. It? It's crazy. It pops yeah. up you doing an interview with Ricky Gervais before he brought out that yeah. an amazing series, yeah. Afterlife. I didn't know that you interviewed him until that popped up for Radio X. Yeah, give me that's a good place five, to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah good yeah. place to start because Ricky, it was a, that was such a surreal experience because I lived this really weird life when I was working on Radio X. So for four years, I did the evening show seven till ten on Radio X, and then I did a Sunday show as well. But before that, I was on XFM where Ricky, he's a massive part of XFM history. You know, the doormen still love him when you come into the building because he was so important and instrumental in making it a success. But he had sent me Afterlife, the first series to watch. And, I, you know, I was living on my own in London. My wife and kids are in Scotland. And uh, I watched Afterlife. And, you know, when you're one of the first folk to get to see something, it's quite a... When you make a judgment on it, you think, God, have I got this wildly wrong? And I always think reviewers should say that when they review something. They should talk about the frame of mind they're in when they see it. So I watched it. And I'm sitting in my flat crying, really lonely, missing my family. And I thought, maybe I've misjudged this. It really got to me, so it was a massive relief when people started watching it going, this has hit me, it's a great piece of work. So when Ricky came in, I thought, he's going to be doing a million interviews, isn't he? He's got, he's going to get asked the same questions. And I don't mind admitting to you, Jim, I like a night out. So I'd been out, I was feeling a little bit fragile, and I thought, I'm going to try something different here. So he just came in, and the first thing I said to him, I think, was, do you mind if we try something a wee bit different? He went, go on. I said, what's your favourite swear word? <laughs> And that was it. Off he went. And we had a swear off. Like, how who can insult the other person the most uh, appallingly before you get a reaction? And we tried to do it without laughing. So we spent eight minutes calling each other all these names under the sun. 
And then I said, you know what I hate? It's those pictures after a podcast or an interview where you've got your arm around doing the thumbs up. Like, look at me. Oh, with gosh. The oh, no. We're not it. doing that after. I, no, Jim, I, my life has been blighted by shite pictures. Like, I hate them. I'm, I've, honestly, I've got so many awful pictures of me looking sweaty and awkward with famous folk. So I said, Ricky, can you think of something different? He went, yeah, let's sit down in the corner with our shoes off. Like, like we're a pair of seven-year-old kids that have come around to play your computer. So we sat in the corner of the room, in this dark room, with our shoes off. Um, and it just looked ridiculous but it worked because you'll have had it a million times right you've just played 80 minutes you've been battered around the pitch and then you've got a microphone stuck in your face saying so how was that for you Jim and you're like, you offer up this media trained professional athlete's answer and that's the antithesis of everything I think it should be about you want to get that person to be I want you to be Jim Hamilton I want you to be you and um, the more comfortable you can make somebody the better like somebody said to me years ago try your best to interview your subject where they're most comfortable and that's normally in their kitchen or their living room or somewhere where they're not feeling uncomfortable and that never tends to be the way does it you have to go in a, a procession or a junket where you get five minutes each with somebody famous but that Ricky thing was magic because he came in we started swearing at each other and had a proper laugh like Paul McCartney I interviewed him in his office in Soho Square and they just started digging um, the overground um, what's it called Crossrail so this would be 10 or 11 years ago and he was looking we're both looking out into this massive hole and he was like god what a racket i'm sorry man he said you don't mind if i play the guitar just to drown that out a wee bit I was like, you don't mind if i play the guitar said paul mccartney no i don't mind so he said go on what what, what do you want me to play and i just said blackbird and he went right okay well i remember writing this when i was wherever i was on tour in america and it just fell into my into my lap and then he reeled off five songs. I was just sat there with my jaw on the floor. And I've been dead lucky with him. You mentioned the Kasabian boys. We recreated the album sleeve for Band on the Run with Paul McCartney. And when it came back out in 2010, and he chose who he would have on that album sleeve. Like the famous original cover had uh, Michael Parkinson on it and uh, Tom Conti and a few other characters. And we asked him if he would update it, who he would have. And I helped um, the Kasabian boys rewrite the questions for that interview and then sat with McCartney and, and it's one of my pride it's, it's pride of place in my house actually a picture of us doing that album and they even had the correct backdrop from the original which they put up behind them and we just did it again and that was that was magical because he's my hero I love him I think he's amazing and probably the most one of the most famous people on the planet but for the right reasons he's an incredible incredible talent so that was pretty special and then, you know, there's the stuff that you don't expect to happen that en ends up being great. Like I went to interview Coldplay in Salt Lake City in Utah. It was one of them, you know, Chris Martin at that time was mega famous and Coldplay were flying. But you go into it slightly apprehensive because he can, you know, he can blow hot or cold. And the interview went really well. And he said, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm going to go back to the hotel. I've got a flight tomorrow morning. And he went, do you not fancy coming on tour for a bit? I said, is that all right? And he said, yeah, have you got your stuff? So the tour manager, a guy called Andy Franks, this amazing guy who'd like worked with Robbie Williams and huge artists over the years. Franks, he's like, we'll send a car back to the hotel to get all your stuff. You've got your passport. You're coming on the plane with us tonight. So it's one of the most amazing experiences. You know, the gig finishes, they all pile into cars. You're in one of them. So I'm in with tour manager Franksy. We get zipped straight through Salt Lake City onto the runway into this private jet. We say private jet, it sounds glamorous. It's like a, I don't know, 40-seater plane because all the crew are on it. And then we fly to LA from Salt Lake City. And then the next night they had the American Music Awards. So I went with them to that. And then we went on a night out afterwards and ended up in this place, the Chateau Marmont in LA, where John Belushi passed away. It's this famous sort of rock and roll hotel. 
and um, ended up back at a party at Kate Bosworth's house, who was in Superman at the time. And then woke up the next day, Coldplay played football. So I played for them against all these local roadies and stuff. And, you know, I just rang the office and said, I'm not coming back for a week. Is that all right? And they went, why? And I said, well, I've been kidnapped by Coldplay. So in the paper, when, and I should have said that, you know, I was the showbiz editor of The Sun for six years. There's a big spread in the paper and it just said kidnapped by Coldplay, you know, Gordon Smart on tour with the band. So we did the gig in Utah. Then we did the American Music Awards, which was amazing. And to get like a, a front row seat of that when I remember Beyonce came in to see them and I was just sitting in the corner drinking and then Justin Timberlake comes in and then Ron Jeremy paid them a visit as well, which was surreal. Obviously now a, dis a disgraced individual. But we won't dwell on that, Jim. But it was a really amazing experience to do all that. And then, you know, you, you build a relationship. And a mad thing happened on that trip because Chris Martin had said he was warming his voice up. It was a wallpaper stripper machine, you know, one of those things, puts it over his face, inhales the steam. And then he gargled whiskey and he said, I bet you wouldn't finish that glass of whiskey. <laughs> All right then. And he then knew you from Scotland. Yeah, the wheels came off. But he did a beautiful thing, right? Because he said, if you do it, I'll give you $200 for your mother-in-law's charity. Because I'd been telling him we'd set up a charity. She passed away from cancer in 2008. So he made the first donation to our charity. And um, about two months after that trip, he got in touch or his management did and said, look, they're really sorry about the delay in putting this money in. And they realised with interest and current market conditions, it's actually $2,000. So he put, it was £2,000 straight into the into the charity, which is amazing. And he probably doesn't realise this, but that money went towards people. The, the motto of the charity was to encourage potential and ease distress. So that money made a massive difference to somebody who otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford working in the arts from Scotland and from Fife. So that stuff, you know, you, I get a lot of grief for working for the paper, and that's fair enough, right? We rubbed. I'll get onto that. Yeah, we rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way, but that's how I can sleep at night and square it all off because some amazing stuff came off the back of that life. How does someone who works in the paper yeah. get so close to people like that when really, and hate's a strong word, but the perception yeah. is is they should hate you or they don't like you, but. That's one of many stories, and we're going to go through a few yeah. of the archives. How do you get to a point of trust when you're working for The Sun? And again, we'll talk a little bit about what it was like mm. working for them, especially in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, more well, so. well, I started in 2003, 2002, 2003. Okay, all right. Yeah, but so, I've worked in newspapers before yeah. that. How do you get the trust of these people then? It's because you go to a party with Coldplay mm. and whoever else, you're going to see it all, aren't you? And if they you don't do. trust you... yeah. The next day, it could literally be in the paper. Well, I can tell you now that about, I always say to people, 80% of what I know, maybe 70% didn't make the paper. Because if you burn your bridges every time something happens, it doesn't take long before you're in a cul-de-sac of, I don't know, it's a dead end. You can't get out of it because you burn, you know, and regardless of what you do for a living, right, you have to have the values that, that direct you through life. If you're untrustworthy or unreliable or stitch people up, then you can forget being trusted. If you behave honourably and play by the rules and, and respect people, or you're straight up about it when they are in trouble, it makes a massive difference. And you only learn that. that that's the other thing. We all make massive mistakes. I've I made terrible mistakes working in newspapers that I regret to this day. I can't do anything about it now. But in my defence, I was growing up. I was in my 20s, early 20s for a lot of those mistakes. And... You know, it doesn't matter what you do for a living, you make those mistakes, you learn in your 20s, you grow up in your 30s, and then you realise you're quite a well-rounded human being in your 40s, at least that's what's happened with me. Um, but yeah, it's all about behaving and following the values that matter to you. And weirdly, I know this sounds preposterous, and there'll be some of your listeners going, shut up, but 
I really think I'm an honourable, straight up, decent, sensible human being that occasionally makes mistakes. And um, you've got to remember as well, I think when I was at the paper, you play a wee bit of a role, right? I know you aren't a monster of the second row who likes ripping people's pants off and doing appalling dark arts. Mm. There's a little bit of yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hang my name on that, to yeah, be honest You can have your name on that. But you know, I played a role working for The Sun because you are writing for your audience. You kinda, you're kind of you an exaggerated version of yourself. Had I worked for The Guardian, I would have behaved entirely differently. But you have to serve up what your audience want. Um, and I've got to remember, I was married at 23 and settled down from 20. So I wasn't exactly this wild, promiscuous, shagging nightmare of a guy. You know, I was I went home to a really happy life with my wife. And she worked in the same industry. Well, I say same industry. She was a singer and a dancer in the West End. And she was trying to make her way in pop music and all that at the same time. So that worked brilliantly for us. And we didn't have kids until we were 28. So we had this great spell together. But I think I got a bit of trust because... I was straight up with folk. If I went up and spoke to you at an event, I'd be all right, Jim, I'm Gordon, I'm from the sun, this is what I do. So there was no mystery around that. But listen, I made a couple of mistakes where people told me things that they'd probably rather not go in the paper and I have to hold my hands up to that. Then it went in the paper. And then it went. Can, every, you, can you give us an example? Tell, yeah, loads of times. Uh, give so us the biggest. The biggest. I mean, I still regret writing a story and I'll, I'll, I'll hedge my bets a wee bit here. I wrote a story about a radio DJ which caused real havoc because I was friendly with a crowd of people around that and they all had the finger of blame pointed at them and it actually didn't come from the people who were blamed for it but it affected our friendship massively and I really regret that because you can't give away your sources you can't explain who told you stuff but by virtue of respecting that rule some folk got chucked under the bus and I really regret it because I lost a big friendship over that and was it worth it for the front page of the sun? It was my job what was the DJ you're allowed to say? Are you comfortable or not? Do I need to go and dig through? Uh, you'll be able to find it. Have um, we seen him recently on TV? <laughs> yes, of course you have, yeah. I'll speak to Mike Tindall, see what he's like. <laughs> that seems to be the end I of the I wasn't every... aware. This is, yeah. I genuinely, I'm not, I'm not no, that was, yeah, trying was, to dig you out here. I just, just felt, I felt terrible that it, it led to problems for a lot of people and it kind of still simmers on even now. And that was, mm, I wasn't aware of that. 15, 16 years ago, right? But that stuff, yeah, that, that's, you know, I hated those nights where you go to bed and think, oh God, that's going to cause trouble. And I got really close to a lot of people, you know, like Noel Gallagher's a good example. You'd see things happen and hear stories and think, I, I can't mention that because that I'll never be allowed back on a night out. I can't mention that. Um, but then there would be enough other stuff that I would say, look, can I talk about this? Can I mention it in the paper? And not not him specifically, but other people, and they'd, they'd either give you a nod or you would know if they didn't want it in. So it was it was quite a difficult balance. But again, I was getting paid, right? Every day, every day of your life, you start afresh. And somebody says, what have you got? What's going in the paper tomorrow? I think we worked it out, actually, that there were 12,000 articles a year that would have my name on them. So, you know, the paper each day would have X number of stories. So the bizarre column, a news story, a feature perhaps, and then you've got all the digital content that was beginning to appear online. Because you've got to remember, I was, you know, when I started in papers in London on Fleet Street in 2002, 2003, there was no sun.co.uk, no mirror.co.uk and no mail online. So we only had to compete with each other. And I think that's where a lot of the trouble came from that was addressed in the Levison inquiry. Because the competition was so fierce amongst the small group of people that they went to lengths, questionable lengths a lot of the time, to beat each other. And then the internet arrived um, and websites and online news kicked in. So 2007, when Twitter kicked off as well, I mean, I remember explaining Twitter to the editor of The Sun. 
And I said, there's this thing, I think it's going to be massive. It's like your Facebook update. Um, I remember you talking about Russell Brand. Yeah, and bringing Russell. Bringing it to your psyche. Yeah, Russell was the first person. And I think we did a thing with um, DDA Drogba. And he said, for every retweet I get, Pepsi are going to donate a quid. So I spoke to Russell and said, Russell, I think we could make a load of money for this amazing charity. And he was like, right, bang. Because he had a huge following from the, from the start. I think Pepsi got emptied for millions for it. But it was great because I think it built a bloody hospital in, in the Ivory Coast. So it shows you that some good came of all, all of that stuff. But yeah, transitioning in newspapers while we went from the traditional print method to digital, that was quite a mad thing to live through. And it was also one of the early epiphanies I had about the future of my career. So like, how am I going to survive this when there's so much competition? When your currency is breaking exclusive stories. And I think I just timed my run pretty well to get out when I did. Because like the last five years of my time in newspapers were, I mean, it tipped me over the edge. I couldn't hold my hands up. I couldn't handle it anymore. Couldn't cope. I needed to get out. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You look at everything that's been around Harry and Meghan, for example. Yeah. And mm. I don't watch much TV, but mm. this was topical for everyone, right? And having met Harry loosely at yeah. Tins's wedding, involved in rugby years loosely, and the fact that they are so topical and so famous, you find yourself at home watching the Netflix series and you're passing judgment just naturally mm. about mm. whether you like him, whether you like her, whether or not the media have got a huge part to play in all this. Mm. One thing that does keep coming up, though, is around the newspapers, around his mum, mm. around sources within the royal family, and it just looks a bit dirty, right? It looks like, it looks like a, a crazy, a yeah, a crazy a setup. When you talk about sources, mm -hmm. like was that a thing? So you'd have inside sources, and and what were they saying? Were they saying like this is going to break, or you need to be here at this time? And yeah, absolutely. because it's very invasive, isn't it? And people talk about wanting to be famous, and mm -hmm. well, yeah, my mates say when we were younger, oh, I'd love to be David Beckham, or mm -hmm. I'd love to be Leonardo DiCaprio. And mm -hmm. when actually you watch the Harry and Meghan doc, just to name one thing, there's a load of other stuff out there. You're thinking, fucking hell, it's pretty invasive. It's it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty dirty in terms of how you go about your life and how you're having to deal with them mm -hmm. different things. And you're, I don't know what part of the chain you are on that, but you're making a living by mm -hmm. trying to get a story or the photographer's trying to get a picture. I just think it's, just think it's very topical. It is. But being parents and we mm -hmm. work loosely in the media, mm -hmm. we're nowhere near as famous as these people and we never mm -hmm. will be. Hopefully I might be. <laughs> never will be. But yeah. because of the Harry and Meghan stuff and the stuff that they've gone through, a couple of questions in that is around the sources element and mm. 
the changing of landscaping uh, of that. And also, what do you think of Harry and Meghan? <laughs> I know what you're getting at, Jim. <laughs> Look, I could talk for hours about this. And at some point, I'm going to have to empty my brain onto the page and, and write about it because it's um, it's such a complicated thing. And, and like you say, it is a dirty game. It is a dirty game. Fame is a cruel mistress. And in Harry and Meghan's case, you know, they've come at fame from quite an interesting position, haven't they? Where he's had it thrust upon him because he was born into the Windsor family um, and he had a terrible tragedy to deal with as a young man, which I think everybody would agree is horrific. And he's clearly really at his core damaged by that. And it explains a lot of stuff. The way he's been treated in the papers has been uncomfortable. I can understand where his anger comes from, completely understand that. But there is a lot of hypocrisy in there and there is a lot of um, woe is me. Uh, I can totally, everyone can understand where he's coming from with the grief aspect of it. And, you know, anybody who's looked into grief, there's a really interesting thing. Elizabeth Ross wrote a book, Dr. Elizabeth Ross. She was a palliative care doctor. And she, when you spend time with people who are in their last days, it gives you an amazing perspective on life. And she devised a thing called the Kubler-Ross curve, which is often called the, the grief curve or the change curve. And right at the, the, the start of it, there's blame and there's anger and there's rage and there's fury. And I know about this because I went through it with my wife when she lost her mum really young. She was 27 when she died. And I thought I better be prepared to help her through this because it's going to be difficult. For some people, the grief curve is over really sharply and you come out the other side. For other people, it can go on for a long, long time. And I think Harry's still in a, a pretty angry cycle of the grief curve. And that's why he's getting so much therapy. But that blame and that anger, you want to find the devil horns in the tail who you can pin it on, you can blame. And the press have been a huge intrusion in his life. And, you know, the press might disagree with that. When I was there, I remember everybody loved Harry. Right, that and that seems to be lost somewhere. I don't know where it went so horribly wrong, what the precise moment was. They mentioned but, it in the doc a little bit, yeah, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, but, I, I just remember everybody thinking Harry was a breath of fresh air and a rascal and a character and good fun. I don't remember everybody. And that's the thing, this notion that you would... Certainly, I can only, I can only speak for myself, and I work with a lot of good people as well. I didn't turn up for work every day going, right, let's ruin Harry's life or let's ruin people's lives. I turned up every day thinking... I want to go and do amazing shit and write about it and meet incredible people and put a roof over my family's head. But that's only me, and I can only speak for me. But on Harry, the, the hypocrisy that bothers me, right, is that you can point the finger at The Sun and other tabloids, and the broadsheet papers do it as well. But at the same time, you've signed a deal with Netflix for a lot of money, and what you're doing is a, a tabloid book where you are telling stories about your family against their will. They are the sources. You've been in, and it is your story, and you're prepared, you're allowed to tell it. But the stuff he's chucked people under the bus with, and that that's becoming, you're entering the same game that the tabloids exactly. are. Exactly. And the Netflix. So the hypocrisy, thing, like you've just said there, yeah. is that that's the weird thing. I mean, I'm loving it, by yeah. the way, loving watching it. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, I, I go back to one of my best mates who coaches Leicester Tigers, his wife, Ellie, mm -hmm. when we were a bit younger. She's like, I ain't got a clue. I don't know that. I don't know that. We're like, do you not watch the news? She's yeah. like, why would I watch the news? It's like death and destruction and terrorism mm. and horrible stuff. I was like, well, what do you watch? And she's like, oh, keeping up with the Kardashians. I was like, why? Mm. She said, it makes me happy watching that life and watching how these yeah. other people live and the see, drama around that. See, fair enough. See, my thing is, Jim, right? I find it really, and it does grind my gears when folks say, why would you work for them? Or why would you read that shit? And I'm like, well, if it's not for you, fine. But don't cast aspersions on other people or turn your nose up at them because it's not for you. I always think, sons like Mrs. Brown's boys, right? 
Nobody admits to watching it, but three and a half million people clearly do watch it, right? It's For some reason, everyone thinks it's massively unpopular, but, you know, for every person that gives me grief, nobody really comes up and says, oh, I love it, I love reading it. And when it happened, it was it was quite nice. But on, going back to Harry and Meghan, and particularly the Netflix thing, how you can justify taking all that dough from them while the crown's on, which is telling your story with a bit of topspin and your mum's story and repeating the Martin Bashir stuff, which William had said should never, ever be repeated again because that was fraudulent and appalling journalism, allegedly, from Martin Bashir, how he got access to Diana, how he persuaded them to get that access. Um, and there's been a big inquiry about that. And I think William had said we never this should never be used again or broadcast again. But Netflix have used that to draw us all in, to pay our £12.95 or whatever it is for the monthly subscription, which he's then capitalising on. And then also there was a, a bit that really bothered me where I think Megan and her pals said, so we decided that we would do our story in People magazine. It's a tabloid. Mm. It's a tabloid. And, you know, I, I'm reluctant to talk about it too much because, you know, if they don't want to be talked about, I won't talk about them. That's but and you know, Jim, you've asked me. I'm giving you an honest answer. You know, like you say, from my perspective, I never went in there wanting the, to put the boot into the Royals. Um, I keep my personal views on the monarchy to myself, but you know, I, I just think um, he's a confused laddie and he needs an arm around him. But what he does need, he needs a hook? What right, does wind me it? up, right? What does wind me up is the publishers, and I've ghostwritten two books and read pen the legal process, the amount of stuff that gets knocked out of a book, I cannot believe he wasn't pulled up before publication on the military, the, stuff. On the military stuff. Yeah, that's you the just crazy don't, You know, like, we both know a lot of boys in that world. You do not ask mm. how many people they've killed. You just don't do it. It's uncomfortable. You don't talk about it. And um, for him to use that in the book and then justify it and then blame the press, I felt, felt that was uncomfortable in poor form and it should have been edited out the that book. That was crazy. It shouldn't have gone in the book. As simple as that. That's the American aspect to it, it is, clearly. Yeah. Is it not? And that, he, that wouldn't have happened. But again, you get your yeah. mates to read the book, right? He's done brilliant work with Invictus Games. He had the whole military on his side. And I feel that that's tarnished it and damaged it. And that's poor editorial judgment. And I think because he's in such a privileged position up there, there aren't enough folks saying, don't do that. What are you thinking, you dafty? Which happened. And sometimes I, I'm very fortunate in my life to have a lot of people saying, that was a bit, why did you do that? And sometimes, you, you know, listen, feedback's a wonderful thing. You can ignore it or take it on board. Constructive criticism's the same. I think he's got enough strong people in his life saying, don't do that. What are you thinking? Um, and and that's a perfect example in, in that book. Um, but also, you know, you look at the people around you when when you're struggling uh, and moving to Montecito, I, I wonder who's there and in a position to say, this isn't a sensible thing to do. And it's like things like complaining about the size of your bedroom in Balmoral Castle, talking about how small your cottage is during a cost of living crisis. You know, I went to school with two kids who lost their parents before they were 12, right? One of them found his mum dead, right, in bed, and his parents got divorced, and the dad didn't want anything to do with them. So he had his teenage years, like Harry, growing up in a house where he didn't really feel entirely welcome. I've heard him talk about it twice in our life. He's gone on to be a really distinguished guy in the military and made an amazing career. He supported his grand financially, looked after his younger brother, complained twice. And what happened to Harry's terrible, right, with his mum and how she died, all of that stuff. But there are people in the real world who have these tragedies and have to deal with them and don't have the same network of support. And when he, you know, when he criticises the institution saying they weren't there for him, I don't know, I wonder if he's really sought help in a meaningful manner to get it, because I'm sure he'd have got it if he'd asked for it. We're talking about two of the most famous people in the world right now. Yeah. And you look at this celebrity status 
Johnny Depp, mm-hmm. the court battle that he went through recently. Leonardo DiCaprio is all over the mm-hmm. media at the minute for the young girls that he has on these mm-hmm. eco-friendly boats. Yeah. Lisa Marie Presley, who's just passed away mm-hmm. in her last interview. And I'll go back to my point. My mate FNL Mike wants to be famous. He's like, when we go mm-hmm. to Ibiza, we've been out in Ushuaia and people think I'm Dan Bilzerian. And he's like, mate, this is <laughs> he's fucking tiny. brilliant. I know he is. <laughs> and he's, I've got a funny story on Dan Bilzerian, actually. Right, so I'll say this quickly. In Monaco, Max Evans, Tom Evans were there. Yeah. I was there on a corporate boat. Actually, Jeremy Clarkson, controversial, again, was on this insurance boat that yeah. I was on. And then I took a picture by the chicane in Monaco, uh, posted it on social media, mm. obviously. That's what you do, your best life. Uh, next thing, Max Evans is ringing me. He's like, mate, you're in Monaco. I said, yeah, I'm on a boat. He said, yeah. I'm on a boat as well. I said, oh, where are you? He says, oh, my cousin, Chris Evans. I, I didn't know Chris Evans yeah. was his cousin, even though it had been mentioned, but I didn't really know. He said, I'll come down to this boat. He said, I'll get someone to come pick you up. I said, it's all right. I'll walk around. I'll have a little wonder. And as I was walking down the pontoon, if that's what you call them in Monaco, this guy calls me onto his boat. He's like, holy shit, it's Dan Bilzerian. <laughs> I'm like, no, mate. Oh, no, no, mate. I play rugby. Oh, no. I'm a rugby player. He said, come on. So I went on this boat yeah. in Monaco. And he had all these discs on his wall. He must have been a producer or something. Yeah. It was absolutely You've gone hilarious. along with it, haven't you? I've gone along with it. I've told him. I said, he said, but holy <laughs> shit, man, you play rugby? This American guy went yeah. on his boat, uh, and I, he, he was that rich that he had a fish tank in the bottom of his boat, yeah. which was like an infinity one. You could see the water underneath and these massive fish. Walked up to the top deck. Surround, I mean, he must have been a chef or something because he had all this baking powder yeah. all over the place. I think he was about to cook, make, make a cake or something. He's like, yeah. holy shit, you're damn Bulzerian. And... Once he said that, the hysteria of some of the people on the boat, some of the staff, uh, didn't come to anything. But I went out the night in Yoshua and people had heard that Dan Bilzerian was in town and they thought it was me. And my mates were absolutely loving it. My mate <laughs> FNL Mike and my mate Kovskin, who works yeah. in the Formula One team, was loving it. And that was not a snapshot because there's a level of fame that comes mm-hmm. with being six foot nine with heels and being a rugby player. When you're younger, mm-hmm. you're like, this is brilliant. Back to my point of all these people, the celebrities, the mm-hmm. Harry and Meghan, uh, the Johnny Depp, and you're watching that Amber Heard thing. You've been in these circles, right? Yeah. And the price of fame. I listen yeah. to Bradley Cooper. Mm-hmm. Love him. Star is born, yeah. Hangover, one of my favorite actors. a brilliant lad as well. Oh, yeah. I bet he is. But yeah. you listen to his story of addiction, of depression. Like, Is that the price of fame? So when you're around all these people, is it a general consensus? And how does it get to that point? Well, there's an interesting thing, and I don't know who was the original source of this, but there's a, there is a theory that you're frozen in time at the moment you become famous, right? And if you apply that to people we know in the public eye, it, it makes sense, right? So Michael Jackson seemed like he was always about five or six years old, right? He was infantile in his behaviour and everything about him seemed like he was stuck as a child. Yeah. And then Leonardo DiCaprio, famous at, what, 13, 14? He's still behaving like a 13, 14-year-old. Yeah, that's a bloody good you take, point. Take Noel Gallagher, for instance. I think he was 26 when Supersonic came out. Um, and yeah, he'd lived the life. He'd worked on building sites. He'd been a roadie. He'd seen a bit of the world, and he's you know coped. I think pretty damn well with fame, and it does work. You think about rugby players as well. You know, you can become quite famous at eighteen, nineteen, and that does seem to stick with you. And I genuinely think that fame. It's why I think we're of a generation. I was born in nineteen eighty. You're a similar vintage, right? What were yeah, you? Eighty two. I mean, you actually look younger. younger than me. But a bit fine. younger, right? But when we were growing up, I think we wanted to be famous for a reason, right? So I always wanted to be Daley Thompson when I was a wee boy, and then I wanted to be Gordon Strachan, and then it was World Cup nineteen. You know, you, you move on with the, the sports star you want to be or the person you want to be, and I think I was probably culpable for. A, 
are involved in the culture of people being famous for nothing. The original Big Brother was I watched about that. 2002, mm. I think maybe. Or maybe Nasty I'm, Nick. Was yeah, he one of the two, first maybe it was 2000 ones? actually. Yeah, Nasty Jay Nick, Cody. Craig. Um, God, I could probably name all of them. Tom, the Irish fella. And that that was the, the most, I remember being on holiday in Tenerife and meeting some folk who were from Holland and they were talking about the culture of this programme called Big Brother. And that was about two summers before it came to Britain. And then you had the culture of celebrity TV, reality TV, Big Brother, Pop Idol, all of that stuff. So you could be fairly, you know, averagely talented be on a reality TV show and have three or four years coining it, doing nightclub appearances. And that culture still existed. And I think I worked with a brilliant guy um, and he used to do a bit of media training. And I do quite a lot of this stuff for famous folk now. And he used to get a bit of paper in the middle. He'd draw a circle and say, that's the privacy circle. If you're going to be in the public eye, put stuff in that circle you never want to share with the world and never, ever talk about it. And he said, everything outside that, if you mention it in interviews, podcasts, whatever it is, that's going to be common ground and fair game and it does kind of work to an extent you know martin for instance compston he doesn't talk about his son uh doesn't nobody knows his name much detail about him at all and he's really strict about that and he's finding it hard to have a conversation with me now in a podcast because any little story about his lad is just clickbait headlines all across the, the press so we can't have a normal conversation about our kids i'm now i've done a couple of days on good morning britain i'm beginning to see it you know it's i have to measure what I say, I mean, if we'd done this six months ago, I'd probably got myself in a load of trouble because I would have been quite loose. Mm. But I've got to think about it now. And, but anyway, the point I'm making is fame is a really cruel mistress and it's dangerous. If you aren't famous for a reason, so if you're not a musician or a sportsman or an actor or somebody at the top of their game, I think there's a different measure of you from the press and the people that will write about you. And then if you are a successful person because of your talent, if you engage in that game, you know, if you appear at, premieres or go to really famous restaurants where you're likely to be papped or you know behave in a, a fairly loose fashion you're going to find yourself on the front page of the paper and I think it was Jimmy Nesbitt always said you know if you take class A drugs and do naughty stuff with prostitutes you're going to end up on the front page of the sun they're the rules they're the two ones that's what he used to say all together yeah I don't know it's mutually exclusive Jim yeah but it was an interesting point you know and I don't know it's I left that's the other thing I left in 2016 mm. because I was so conflicted about the whole thing and it's very different when you go from being a worker bee to being one of the queen bees right and you can always blame your boss it's the same in in most industries right what, remember what it was like when you worked somewhere and you can say, ah, the boss is rubbish. They make terrible decisions. I'm having nothing to do with that. I would have done it differently. And then suddenly you're the boss and you're thinking about every big decision. And that happened to me when I was 32, got sent to Scotland to be the, the editor of the Scottish Sun. And suddenly you are responsible. And I'm a massive believer in that. There was a, I think he was the foreign secretary in the British government when we went to war with the Falklands. And he didn't see it coming the trouble that was that was coming our way and he fell on his sword and said i might not be to blame there are people who should have pointed this out but i am responsible and i follow my sword and, and i resign and i always thought that's really good that isn't it you you have to take responsibility for it it's easy to go it's your fault you made a mistake you've you've dropped the ball but actually there's something in saying actually it's my fault and that was what happened in the newspapers for me because the massive decisions about putting things and people in the front page you know, I remember the way that we were writing about Amy Winehouse, for instance, sat massively uncomfortably with me. I remember saying in the office on almost a daily basis, I'm worried that she's going to die and we have to really think about how we write about this. 
and it, it's a weird momentum that builds up with people when they're in the public eye and it's kind of cyclical as well it happened with Charlotte Church then it happened with Amy Winehouse it happened with Cheryl Cole you know Sheridan Smith again later in my career I, I didn't like the way that she was being written about and it just feels like this momentum builds up Pete Doherty and Kate Moss that was the same thing and at the moment it's been Harry and Meghan for however long and it's weird how it just comes to an end and then somebody else gets caught in that mad cyclone of negative press and huge stories and and it is cyclical uh, but that doesn't help the people who are in the middle of it and you know what it's like you've been involved in a couple of fairly big scandals the one thing I always say to people when they're in it, and I've done quite a lot of this, is that if you switch your phone off and just continue with your life, it's it's easier to cope with and easier to deal with. And I think phones, I mean, I'm terrible for it. I don't yeah. know about you. What is it they say? Comparisons, the, the theft of joy or something like that. And you just spend your life looking at it and reading it and you can doom scroll horrifically. And I think fame now is so ugly with that if you're in the public eye. It's so easy to... You know, people just chuck rocks at you. Well, that's the shift, media. isn't it? That's yeah, the shift yeah. of the old school days where you pick yeah. up a sun, yeah. flip to page three, mm-hmm. and then go your way through there and you talk about it or whatever, then well, you mate, close it. Whereas now, straight on there, well, yeah. it's not even people don't pick up the paper now. It could be a headline or it could be yeah. like a small snippet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the social culture that we're in is mm-hmm. your past judgment. I find myself doing it mm-hmm. and I've had to change my mindset. Yeah. You know, you talk about guilty pleasures, people say, oh, well, I don't read this and I don't like it. In yeah. bed, Daily Mail, straight, straight into straight the show, it. straight yeah. into the showbiz. Yeah, you know, yeah. you'd have no idea if any of the stories are true. Have you been in it? Great yet? pictures. I haven't. I've no. been. I've been in the sidebar. Of, they call it the sidebar of shame, don't they? You know that list of showbiz stories. And UK was, or US? No, this was UK. Okay, UK. So it was after I left the Sun and I was on Radio X and we got we'd gone to the Brits. So it would have been February 2017, and Peter Crouch was out with Abby Clancy and we got on really well. And uh, Crouchy was still playing for Stoke at the time. So he was on a curfew. He was meant to be in his bed by 11 o'clock. Otherwise, there was the mandatory club fine, week's wages, whatever. So Abby's being sick. She's hammered, right? But he's behind the door. And there's loads of paps there. And he's saying, Gordon, can you go out and make sure Abby's okay? But nobody can see him. So he's behind the door. I'm outside. Abby's being sick. Like She's like, I'm not being sick. I've just got a, what she said, the dry, what we would call the dry boke in Scotland. But anyway, she's got her hair back and I'm kind of helping her and holding her and all these paps and he's behind the door. And I remember like the, the paps saying, fucking hell, you didn't take long to change your tune. Because I'm like, lads, piss off, leave her alone. She's being sick. They all try to get pictures of her. And there's just this one picture, one frame when Crouchy's like, you can just see him. Like, <laughs> so conspicuous behind the door. And if, I think he got a week's wages, fine for it. Um, but then it was like, you know, Radio X, DJ Gordon Smart and Abby Clancy. And then I had to say to my wife that Peter Crouch was there. I can t- he's definitely there. So I can imagine how it, you know, and, and also like, I'm married to a, a football manager's daughter and he's quite famous in Scotland. He's like the Harry Redknapp of Scotland. And I've, I've seen the ugly side of, you know, how angry he would get when his team got a shitbagging in the press for being rubbish. I don't know how angry he'd get when stuff about his life would be asked about. And some really personal stuff happened to our family with all that that was horrible you know and like you know, when his wife died as well there's a photographer at the funeral so i can understand the ethics on the other side where you're having an incredibly private moment and you feel like there's an intrusion because that felt horrible when you know everybody was broken and upset and it was a horrible thing and there's a photographer there trying to get pictures of you know he was friends with gordon brown and sir alex ferguson and all those kind of people so they were interested to know who was there and um, so it's not nice on the other side and you know 
ultimately, you've got to make a decision whether you're comfortable with it or you're not as a journalist. And I managed 15 years, I think it was, 14, 15 years. And I, I had to get out because I, I wasn't comfortable with it, Jim. Simple mm. as that. I wasn't comfortable with it. And it's funny because I hoped I'd put enough distance between me now and what happened then. But folk, and I get it. I understand people want to have somebody to blame for it. And because my picture was in the paper for six years or whatever, you know, you, you have to take it on the chin. But it does get me down. Like I'm part of this business and there's an ad floating around social media at the moment promoting it. And like some of the abuse you get on it is horrific. I mean, is that because of the sun? Yeah, yeah, yeah six years on. Yeah. And um, it's like, I, I try to reply to folk, go, hold on a minute, lads. Just just to put your gas at a peep for a second, we're doing this business because this, 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 and this. And by the way, I left six years ago. And then it's like, yeah, but you've, you, know, you, get, you just end up in that argument, you know? It's interesting now, being retired, I overachieved, right? I was an overachiever. Came from nothing wasn't amazing at rugby i could scrap i was physical and i was yeah. six foot nine with heels so i was a big bloke yeah and the experiences that rugby gave me but i have now um mm -hmm. things are going well in the media so you get to experience yeah. nice things go to concerts go and watch shows yeah. um go to art galleries my wife's yeah. likes doing stuff like that and going to museums yeah. and watching other sports right yeah and having an interest in all that and i think if i had my time again what would I want to be or what would I want to do? If I had a, a blank canvas. Don't do that to yourself. I know, I shouldn't. No, but it's a good thing because it's like, it, it does, it's, it's yeah. they're happy thoughts. I'm happy with my life, by the uh, way. Good, good. And would I play rugby again? I went to watch Marcus Mumford mm -hmm. on his solo tour yeah. that he's been doing. I went to watch him in Glasgow, actually, yeah. in a warehouse. One of the most talented he's human amazing, beings yeah. Yeah. I have ever seen. And I looked at him and he was playing the guitar and he was singing... There was no dubbing. There was yeah. nothing. It was just him. And I thought, that... He's a good lad, yeah. ...is what I'd want to be. Really? That, in a band. I'm I, Listen, I'm the same as you. I always wonder... I, I would love to have worked in radio from early in my 20s, but it's quite hard to get into. So I had to be a journalist first for the doors to open. And I'm only really getting to where I want to be now. A lot of journalists start out. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky when I was growing up because I had a big brother two and a half years older than me who loved music and loved books. My mum and dad, my dad's a GP, my mum's a teacher. So they were intelligent people that made, you know, they encouraged us to read, they encouraged us. They were brilliant as parents because they took us everywhere. We did amazing things. You know what it's like? I was so, so lucky to be, to have parents like that. You know, they, they sacrificed everything in their lives to give us such a good life. You know, my dad would take us skiing up to Glen Shee and I look back and I think how miserable I was when the snow's blowing horizontally and you're freezing cold in your CNA jacket and the dye's running down your face and you're like, Dad, why are you doing this? But now you could drop me off a helicopter on the top of a mountain and I'd be able to ski down. Mm. And that's because they gave me that opportunity, you know. And again, reading my mum and dad picking me up on my grandma and the way I speak and making sure I was corrected when I got things wrong. And they still do it now when I'm on the radio or I write an article, they'll pick me up on my spelling and, and things I've said or a question I've asked. And I, I'm so grateful for that. And I've got two kids now, a 13 year old boy and a 10 year old girl. And I want to give them the same, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just grateful to have been given a chance and another thing I had brilliant teachers and I don't think we give enough credit to the people who who taught us you know I was state educated like I say Kinross High School I had so many inspirational teachers and all the subjects from PE all the way through to history um Mr Mackey in history I'll never forget that guy brilliant got my mind thinking about trade unionism Russia you know how on earth do you get a Scottish kid interested in all that and it was because of him because he was a effervescent gregarious 
really interesting dude, loved music, and I was just fascinated by him. But I was lucky to I'd say 90% of my teachers were brilliant. Mm. So I've left with this hunger and this thirst for knowledge, and I'm you know naturally interested in people. I find I love sitting down, meeting somebody new, and getting to the bottom of their story. Like that's why I find you interesting. Yeah, well, you're well, a fascinating I, character. I, I am. I, it, this is the thing. Like listening to you talk and your upbringing. Yeah. Part of me doing this show is to kind of share mm-hmm. mine as well. People think, oh, rugby, public school, sport, you... private school, sport. What? Which one is it? Uh, privileged life. It's interesting you saying like similar to me. My life journey. Yeah, I shouldn't be here. You should, should have been a special forces operative, I think. That was the route I was going. So my dad was in the special forces, and that kind of shaped my life. Right. right. Let's go a bit about me. Right. Yeah, I know it's the big gym show. It big... makes sense though, doesn't yeah, it? It does. Yeah. But my dad and I was chatting to Foxy actually because I, I listened yeah. to him on your podcast, mm-hmm. and he's involved in the Doddy Aid stuff. Went back on the voice note, and mm-hmm. then the SAS shows just come out. Mm-hmm. So I've had a tough life, and I say that having not had my parents mainly my dad being about Mm -hmm. and that's been the biggest struggle for me Mm -hmm. not as a player because when you're playing rugby you're in it and you've got all the excitement you don't have time to think but the transition period of being able to lean on a parent and say what do you think about this Mm -hmm. what do you think about that it's interesting listening about your education as a kid coming through like you know the influence of reading and the fact that your mum and dad have got something about them in terms of their jobs that Mm -hmm. they do in their careers I had nothing yeah. And I, uh, you know what? And if I did have something, I wouldn't be where I am. And it was listen. I was listening to. I know that David Goggins is the kind of yeah, yeah. You know, it's like he's, he's like the goat, isn't he? But it's yeah. very quite cheesy. But the first time ever, I didn't know his story. I just seen all the stuff. Get fucking on the road and get running. You know, he's shouting at people. But actually, listening to his story on the way down here, looked at his influences when he was younger. That his mm-hmm. dad used to beat up his mum and he used to beat him up and what he had to deal with as a young kid. Then he went through the Navy SEALs and went through the Special Forces and did all of them and done something that no one's ever done. I always think back on my life. If I had a privileged upbringing, I would never Mm -hmm. be in this position. And there was one analogy that I saw, and it would be interesting talking to Foxy about this. He's Mm going to come on. And it was around the Navy SEALs that I saw where they said, the ones that succeed are the ones where there is no plan B. Yeah. yeah. So you can ring the bell and there's that option mm-hmm. and you can go back and work in the supermarket or you've got the comfort of your own bed. Mm-hmm. The ones, not all of them, but the majority of the ones are the ones where, well, I, I'm, I'd rather drown here. Yeah. I'd rather die. Like mm-hmm. there ain't a plan B. And without going too dark and too deep, that was basically where my career went. And mm-hmm. without the, the influences of a dad, especially, and not a great relationship with my mum, grew up in a council state. I was in foster care for a year, own choice apparently. And I find myself now in the media and listen to you talk and the conversations that you can have and the context and the tone and the terminology that you use. It's, it's brilliant. I absolutely love it. But I'm still on this journey now of this new life of learning. But that's why you'll succeed, mm. right? Because you've got a fire in your belly and a determination to make it work. And you know, you're also very clear about where you want to go. You've got, And that's the hardest thing, I think, in life, is if you want to get somewhere, it's about putting the stuff in place to get to that point. And it did not go to plan for me, Jim. That's mm. the thing. You know, I've, I've had a... A rough old road getting there, you know. So I had a great school, right? I loved it, but um, made a bit of an arse of it towards the end. I was quite old for my year, and I got a bit cocky because I did really well in my exams when I was sixteen, and got far too big for my boots and was a bit of a dick, mainly because it felt like it was all falling in my lap. School was a skoosh, 
I wasn't a, a bad looking wee guy, he was pretty handy at sport, got far too big for my boots, had an older brother who gave me this weird confidence that I could do anything in the world and he was off at university and I thought that's the life I want. Took my eye off the ball spectacularly and made an arse of it in my last two years at school. And had things gone to plan, I would have been a doctor like my dad because that's what I thought I wanted to do. But I had a great teacher in English, Mrs. Poller, Caroline Poller, and we set up a school newspaper and she said, you should really think about this as a living. And I was like, why would I do that? You know, I'm going to be a doctor like my dad. And I actually realised what I was good at was talking to people and, and finding stuff out and, you know, presenting stories and writing. And... She totally turned my head and, you know, we had the school newspaper, which was quite funny. You know, my first front page ever was about, have I told you this before? No. My, so we discovered that our art teacher, Mr. Cowie, was in the original lineup of Wet, Wet, Wet. So I think the first front page we ever did was, did you know your art teacher was a pop star? And with a picture of Mr. Cowie and he had a Les Paul guitar. And I thought, without realising it, that's a tabloid front page, isn't it? And we sold 300 and odd copies at 30 odd pence. And suddenly all this money was coming in. So I was weirdly learning on the job how to be a tabloid journalist. And then by episode four, we had a thing called Teacher Watch. Have you seen your teacher in the pub? And uh, anyway, the, the, the school kind of took me aside and said, look, you're kind of stepping on some toes here. This is going in the wrong direction. And I was like, well, that's censorship, isn't it? You're trying to close the paper down. And somebody who worked at the school had told their parents about this. And a guy who worked for the Courier and Evening Telegraph in Dundee, DC Thompson's right, who published the Beano and the Dandy and local newspapers in, in Dundee, got in touch and said, you, you should be a journalist son. When do you leave school? And I said, well, in May. And they said, come and work for us. So I got a job straight out of school working for, the, for DC Thompson. So I did, what, June, July, August, September and October as a junior reporter at a paper. And I learned so much moved to dundee live with my brother because he was a student there and i was working as a journalist earning a wage two pounds expenses every day for my lunch all this kind of stuff and i was like grew up so quickly then i you know I remember the, the my boss the chief reporter sandy mcgregor said look across there son that's the editor by the time you're 40 you could be that guy and i looked across and he, he was smoking a pipe and he had the cardigan on <laughs> and i thought fuck that i don't want to be that guy by the time i'm 40 because everyone I worked with was just at a university and they were all characters, like amazing characters. Geezer called Derek Brown, a girl called Jane Smarnitsky, and I really looked up to them. And they both took me aside and said, look, go and grow up and go to university. So I, I sacked the job off, had a place at uni to do journalism in Edinburgh, and I had a wild three years. Like, the most incredible three years ever. I ended up being a nightclub promoter running Scotland's biggest student night called Shark. Two and a half thousand students every Wednesday night at Revolution, Cavendish, Eros and Elite. Then we launched it in Glasgow and some mad shit happened. But once again, out, out the sort of, without realising it, I was becoming a kind of showbiz journalist, right? How do you combine nightclubs, music, boozing, famous people, earning money out of it? Got massively distracted, forgot about journalism, graduated by the skin of my teeth and then fell back in love with my wife who I went out with at school and she was in London in the West End doing all this um, sort of musical theatre. So I chased her down to London, right? Thinking, yeah, the streets are paved with gold. We cocky bugger like me, no problem. I'll just, I've smashed Scotland, I'll, I'll do it down in London. Nobody was interested in this precocious wee Scottish prick <laughs> who'd turned up thinking he was the main man and by God, Jim, that was a lesson. Being in London, skint, no money. Really, Kate was really struggling as well financially. So I ended up working for free for the Sutton Guardian, doing court reporting for free because they wouldn't give me a job for NewsQuest. And I remember thinking, how has it come to this? I've got loads of qualifications. I'm really bright. I've got a degree. I'm not a bad looking young lad. This is 
fucking frustrating. So I ended up being a football coach and playing really shit football, sort of lower league football. But anybody who's listening who knows me will know that most of that time was spent in plaster or injured or hospital because <laughs> I had the propensity to get battered on the football pitch, right? So I spent quite a lot of time working actually as a janitor for a football company called Curver Coaching because I was in plaster, so I couldn't coach. So they got me to run the ground next to Chessington World of Adventure. And let me tell you, Jim, right, when I was... 21 years old, sitting in a tracksuit with my leg in plaster, getting £7 an hour, while these kids came in and gave me abuse every day for being Scottish, I thought, I've fucked it. I, th I, didn't, my dad, I remember my dad saying, you should maybe apply to be a bus driver. <laughs> and I was like, maybe you're right, Dad. You know? <laughs> um, so, and I was so lucky because a mate of mine from uni found out that I was kind of down on my luck, and he said, why don't you come and work for us in Edinburgh? as a journalist for this agency. So I went to work for Deadline Scotland in Edinburgh and they worked for every paper. So I'd do bits for the Herald, the Daily Record, the Evening News in Edinburgh. I'd work for everyone. It was amazing. I'd, I mean, it was horrific. It was a fucking hard, hard year of my life. And Kate stayed in London. I went back to Edinburgh and MTV Europe came to Edinburgh, right? And the boy I mentioned from Dundee, Derek Brown, was working on the Bazaar column at The Sun. And... Um, it just so happened that I knew all the boys in nightclubs. So I got them into all these after parties that were happening at MTV Awards. And Derek said to me, you should come and work for The Sun in London. And I was like, honestly, man, I, I, at that point, I was on 12 grand a year. I was so skint. Like, me and Kate could barely afford the train ticket backwards and forwards. And um, so I went down to London, did some shift for The Sun. And I thought, I'm going to work harder than anybody else here. I'm going to do all the shifts nobody else wants to do because this is my chance. This is my way in. Mm. So when folks say to me, why the fuck did you work for The Sun? And I said, well, I eventually got offered three times the salary I was on at 22 years old, 23 years old. And I grabbed the job working for the biggest paper in the country. And in my first two weeks, I got sent to the south of France to go and report at the NRJ Awards. I went to the Brit Awards. Lee Francis was coming through, so I was writing loads about Avid Merian and Bo Selector. And I was like, oh, this is great. I can make... I could, and then I thought, I could be the bizarre editor when I was 23. And then after that, I could edit this paper. And I could see the route map for doing it. And it was just about getting my head down and working hard. And it worked. And on my first day at The Sun, the deputy editor said to me, not another fucking jock working in London. And I thought, is that right? Is that fucking right? Mm. I'll have you. And uh, that was the motivation I needed. And I grafted and grafted and grafted. And then obviously got to 36, burnt out, wreck, completely ruined gym and needed to get out for my own mental health and sanity because I was in a really bad place by the end of it. Well, the place we're in now, I mean, the lay of the land in media, the mm. fact that we're here, podcasting is becoming so big. And I think so important, not only is it free mm -hmm. to consume podcasts, but... I think the tone, the art of listening to different mm -hmm. people and the information that you get. Like, I just think yeah. there's, there's nothing like it. It's this new craze, which I've been involved in. I mean, I've been talking about rugby. This is fairly new to me. Mm -hmm. But talking about rugby and being able to give people a snapshot of that where they don't necessarily need to read. Like, I service people by doing an article for The Times. Mm -hmm. There's no tone. It's goes written sometimes, so therefore mm -hmm. a bit of a fraud. But when I deliver the rugby pod and we have these conversations, this is me, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's as raw as it comes. And I think there's a beauty in that mm -hmm. because you feel like you know the, the people. And it'd be the same as radio. Yeah. Like if I'm listening to a radio station or if I listen to a podcast like Joe Rogan, the number one, a bit controversial mm -hmm. right now, but I listened to him six or seven years ago. Mm -hmm. I feel like I know the bloke. Yeah. And there's been a number of podcasts yeah. like that. And that's, that's a magical what, thing, isn't it? It, it is. A, it's, it's a magical thing. Because in broadcast media, traditionally, you don't really feel like you know the no. person do you no. and listen here's the thing with podcasting we did the bizarre podcast in 2008 
I didn't hear that one. 2008, yeah, we did oh, Interviewing people. Interviewing people in a tiny little studio in, in Wapping, of all places, in a wee cupboard with two microphones. And sometimes over on ISDN, you get somebody on. And we had Amy Winehouse on there and all sorts of you know incredible talents when they were coming through. And um, I look back on that and I'm quite vexed about it because when I was doing the Bizarre Column, we, we filmed loads. And I remember saying... There were, I worked with some great people, a guy called Mark Clues and David Ross, a guy called Simon Rothstein. And we were always banging on the door at the bosses saying, this should be a YouTube channel. We should be doing this as a bizarre column, should be videoed. And I'd do the bizarre awards and spend ages filming around town. And ultimately, the problem you reached in newspapers is that some folk just thought, hang on a minute, this is the sun that's going to stitch me up. But we actually, when I did it, I like to think we had a great relationship with famous people. So I think about, you know, James Corden and Russell Brand and Ellie Goulding and Rihanna, you know, people that were coming through at the same time and uh, even in publicity. So the guys that were on the lowest rung of those big companies at the record labels or, or big agencies, big PR agencies, they're now the bosses with their own firms. And, you know, when we were all coming through, we'd look out for each other. And I'm so vexed that I didn't push that YouTube thing more because um, I was the first bizarre editor on Twitter in 2007, I think I joined, with Russell and people like that. So, I, you know, I, when I left Bizarre, I had over 100,000 followers, which was a lot of the time. Got on Instagram early. Um, it was an exciting time to do it, but I also realised when we started to embrace social media and the internet that the conventional media I was paid by was beginning to diminish. So there's a great example I give people, and I think it was 2010 or maybe 2011, one of the best days I ever had was, I think I had three exclusive stories on page one of The Sun. Andy Murray either getting married or being a dad. I can't remember which one it was. Probably getting married. And there were two other big stories. The Spice Girls were reuniting for another world tour, which was a decent show, but it was exclusive. And another story about songs of praise coming from the jungle in Cali, which was quite a big deal at the time, right? So got mm. different stories, but all on the front page. And I remember a, a media professor telling me that you could preserve an exclusive at that point for eight seconds, a print exclusive, because by the time it had gone up online or on the social media channels for the paper or on the website, it would take eight seconds to be aggregated and repeated around the world by your rivals. And there was this horrible bun fight at that time about proper accreditation for who broke the story and all that. And uh, I remember thinking, the game's a bogey here. I'm fucked, because your currency is breaking stories. Mm. And if you can't monetize that and pay for it, and it's really interesting you mentioned that about about podcasts being free because ultimately your values, your experience in your black book, right? But for people to get that for free, you've invested your entire life in that. So there has to be some commercial value and that's where there's a difficult decision to make because you do the premium content thing or does the money come from the live side of it? You know, do you do gym, but the big gym show on the roads, which you will do, which is Chatham House Rules, you pay 20 quid for a ticket or maybe more for the Golden Circle. <laughs> and and then suddenly you, your audience, your relationship with the audience changes. And I went through that at the paper where suddenly we decided if you want this content, you're going to have to pay for it. So we had to have a, a paywall online. And that caused havoc. Works brilliantly for the Times and maybe a more middle-class audience, but for working-class people to hand over a credit card and say, I'd subscribe for X amount of money per month, that's a difficult call. And that's the world that we now live in as individual publishers, right? We are individual publishers, whether we like it or not. And actually, everybody listening to this is a journalist in their own right because you are editing and curating your opinions every day, your pictures every day, articles you like, books you find interesting, music you love, and you're sharing it. 
So I think we're all publishers. The difference between me and the average person that's doing that is that I've got shitloads of media law experience. I've got lots of vocational experience and how it affects people and how they respond to it. And I've also got a little bit of resilience and how to deal with it when it goes fucking horribly wrong. <laughs> right? So people in the street don't have that. And that's why Facebook is becoming a real cesspit for horrible arguments. We as a human race read more than we've ever read, but it's poorly researched uncorroborated, not backed up, and often total fantasy, but we're reading loads of it. And that's the thing that worries me a wee bit. You know, I'd, I'd like to think, for all the criticism I get for working for The Sun, I've got lots of experience. My black books and my contacts prove that I was in amongst it. And I always recite this brilliant line from Goodwill Hunting where Robin Williams falls out with Matt Damon because Matt Damon's being a smart arse. He's read every book there is in the planet. And he insults Robin Williams' wife and he grabs him, pins him against the wall and says, listen to me, you little shit. You can read every book in the world, but you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. Mm. And that's the thing. You do know what it feels like to be lying in a pile of mud with Martin Johnson lying on top of you, Lawrence Delalio trying to rip your ear off your head. You know what it's like to make a podcast happen from nothing and transition from professional sport into the media. You know, I know what it's like to reinvent myself from a showbiz reporter to an editor handling serious politics to then leave to be a broadcaster and radio to run my own business. And then I also have the hinterland to understand what it's like when it all goes to shit. And we've not really properly talked about it apart from that train journey and the way into London one day. But, you know, I, I found myself at the beginning, just before lockdown, February 2020, lost my voice completely. Couldn't speak. Terrified. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was diagnosed with a lump on my vocal cords, which could have been a nodule. It could have been, you know, an injury that I'd picked up by shouting at football or whatever it was. But then I got a phone call from the surgeon saying, we can't operate. It's too dangerous. So I lost my voice. Right. I couldn't speak. And I lost my job as a result of it. My contract ran out at Radio X and they're not going to give a new contract to an injured soldier like the same thing that would happen in rugby. So in the space of seven months, I went from being a really comfortable, really happy, forward-thinking, fairly settled person who knew where I belonged in the, in the media firmament and knew what my job was and where I wanted to go to having no furlough, no government support, you know, terrified about keeping a roof over our head, worrying about what the future held, but more importantly, about my health. I had to wait seven months for the operation. Eventually got the operation, and by that point, you had to learn to speak again and talk again. And, you know, I think that's the important thing. And the point I'm trying to get to is, it's not a cakewalk. It doesn't fall into your lap. Mm. I remember an agent said to me once, the phone isn't ringing for Jamie Redknapp and Freddie Flintoff every day. They have to go and hassle and chase and make shit happen. And it's the same for you. You know, if you have a lazy day, as a freelance podcaster or you don't chase the next interview or follow it up, it isn't going to happen, Jim. Mm, that's and a shift for me, mate. It's a big thing. It you is, know? yeah. And you've got yeah. two weeks of you thinking, I'm quite tired. Mm. That affects you four weeks down the line. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm hustling like I have never hustled in my life at the moment. I'm earning less than I've earned for a long, long time. But I'm happy mm. because I'm doing stuff I love with people I really like and I know it'll come good because I think I'm a decent, well-rounded human being who hasn't been a, you know, I don't know how much I can swear on this, but I, I can swear how much you fucking want. Yeah, I haven't been a, I haven't been a cunt. Yeah, I really well, clearly haven't. with the people that you've Believe interviewed. That. Yeah, no, but you're in. <laughs> but, but I haven't been. Yeah, and um, and look, you can't go through life where everybody loves you. And I'm well, well that's aware. what I've realised. And that's hard. Yeah, and that's because you. I think you and I both want to be. We want to be loved by folk, mm. right? And it, it it still jars me when I think, why do you think I'm such a prick? What have I done? And you just have to sometimes draw a line under that and, and stop worrying about it. And you know, bands like. Coldplay are a really good example and sportsmen as well. I find it amazing when 
the things that they're vulnerable about or insecure about. And I did a bit of work, I think I told you, with the Welsh rugby team. I couldn't believe how sensitive they were to mm. what was written about them by rugby journalists. You know, there's some players that can do things that I would I can only dream of. Like having the mental stability and calmness to take a conversion from 50 yards in front of 80,000 people. Well, that's superhuman to me. Amazing. But some guy says, you know, there was a misplaced pass or a forward pass at a critical moment, and that's ruined their month. So I know. If, they'll look at that within yeah, seconds of being on the pitch. Within seconds. And honestly, we could see the performance graphs mm. and where they let themselves down, and it was the minute they got their phones. And like that, that's the other thing. You know, going back to your Prince Harry, it is the elephant in the room, right? You go back to the Levison inquiry. There was a brilliant cartoon in the Times where Lord Levison's sitting at this mahogany desk and for those of you who don't remember, the, the Levison Inquiry was an investigation into the standards, practices and ethics of the newspaper industry. Where was it going wrong? What was the public interest? And why were we writing about celebrities in the way we do? And it was a really, I found it fascinating. I gave oral evidence and I gave written evidence. And I was cross-examined by Robert J. QC in front of Lord Levison. And I really, really thought about it and spent a lot of time thinking about my role in the world and didn't feel great about a lot of it to be honest because the first time I'd properly thought about it and there's this great cartoon at the end of it in the Times where Lord Levison's at his mahogany desk and he's got this huge pile of papers in his entry saying you know standards practice and ethics but then the Twitter birds flying above his head shitting on him because I think four pages in the final report were dedicated to social media and I, you know I, I talk about this example all the time the day I gave evidence there was a murder on Oxford Street and there was a teenager teenager lying in the street with a knife sticking out of his chest, right? The, the Evening Standard published a picture of the tarpaulin over the body with a police cordon and people looking horrified over the scene of the crime. You open social media and it was just like another soldier down, the body lying with a knife sticking out of it, the video of the body being emptied into the back of an ambulance, all of that stuff. And, you know, it's a big thing you learn about the ethics of photojournalism. What's the picture you publish? And suddenly, you know, I've been through all that as an editor now, right? And there's a great example I always give to people. And actually, this was something, I think it was at university. There was a picture of a homeless guy in Edinburgh, right? Standing on a bridge and he's decided to take his own life. But he's got his dog, you know, and he's holding the dog and he's standing on the bridge. And this was opposite the old Scotsman office. So the photographer's seen this happen because there's some police interest. And the photographer takes every picture of every frame of what then happens. And my question always is to young journalists or people who are thinking about the ethics of which picture to publish, what do you publish? Do you So what happened is he dropped the dog first and the dog fell to its death. He then had a moment of reflection and then he jumped to his death. Um, you know, this photographer's got every frame from the start to the finish. Which picture do you put on the front page of the, the evening news, I ask you, Jim? The one where he stood there with the dog. Yeah, that's that's a really good choice and probably the most eth ethical thing to do. The one the Evening News published was the picture of him after he'd thrown the dog. So you can't see the dog. You can see the guy moments after the most loved thing in his life. Mm. He's thrown to his death and then he's about to do the same. So you've got the horror of the dog dying, but then the moment before the horror of the guy. Of course. So, yeah. And again, what I'm trying to say is run that through your mind before you make a criticism about a journalist or a reporter or a podcaster for that matter, because you know the most successful podcasts you release will be the ones with the big headlines. Mm. So when Tin sits here and you ask him about Prince Harry and or the, Andrew or Andrew, well, exactly. There's the story. The inner monologue is how far can I push this with my mate before mm. he's no longer my mate? Because mm. that was my conundrum on a daily basis. Like, 
what can I get? What? How can I report this story without pissing off somebody I love dearly? Mm. And it's a nightmare when it's on your doorstep. You know? That's the hardest thing ah. in this for me because one thing, I don't like clickbait. No. But I've also experimented over the last few years and then now I'm transitioning a little bit into my own space yeah. and putting stuff on social media. My algorithm's fucked on Instagram, by the way. Haskell told me to buy followers. And for, oh, you didn't? Yeah, I bought about 20,000 from, Indone- 20, from Indonesia for about a grand and it's just ruined everything. But some of the interviews I'm putting out and it's like, when I was with Andy Powell, you've got to remember, we've both been in the Coliseum together, right? You know, yeah. we, we've been out there on the battlefield. Are you entertained? I wanted to ask him about drugs. Right. And I, I, I couldn't do it. I you couldn't can do it? I couldn't do it, no. I couldn't do it because... See, if you worked for me and you came back and you hadn't asked him, <laughs> I'd be, Jim, what the fuck's going on? There's one story... And that's 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 what my job was as the boss. Yeah, I know, I know. So for me, it, it, it's it, it's new. I'm learning. But you I can think there's ask. A, there's a, I can ask. Yeah, you can, and but you it, should but, ask. But it is. I think it's having the confidence, but also, it's the way that you ask, I suppose. And yeah. because of these heightened topics, yeah, you know, me, me and him will sit there and have a conversation, and mm. it's a decent conversation. But we know, in order for it to grow, the headline needs to be mm-hmm. Andy Powell and Gavin Henderson. After we played yeah. Scotland in 2010, we're snorting cocaine yeah. off another player's shoe, ex player's yeah. shoe. Now, I don't know if that happened, yeah. all right, but that yeah. is it's the, story. the headline, and then yeah. whether or not the context is in there because the clickbait yeah. stuff, yeah. I don't like it. I mean, the Daily Mail, you, you, you see a headline, I you mean, go in. I'm going through this with Martin at the moment. So he, I knew his eyesight was terrible. So I took him to get his eyes tested. He wasn't wasn't best pleased about it because I kind of coerced him into it. But he had an astigmatism, which I think 70% of the population has, right? It means one eye is slightly different shape than the others. And the headlines in the Scottish papers were Martin Comston's health fears over eye disease. So all his relatives start ringing saying, you all right? And he's like, no, Gordon's told the story about me having an eye test. And that, that again, he then looks at me going, that's what you did for 15 years, isn't it? And I was like, oh, fuck sake you know mm. i'm not responsible for every headline but it, that happened on a regular occasion because the headline doesn't always marry up to the story and there is a lot of hyperbole and top spin on stuff and martin reminded me the other day that he lived with me in london and i was editor in scotland and our flat got burgled by some fairly nasty characters and the neighbors got held at knife point and all their wedding presents were nicked and martin had been on a night up turned up at the back at the front door and the cops were there so anyway there was, it was one of those days i was in the office and there were no stories there's no front page. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, fucking hell. And I made the mistake of saying to the deputy, well, look, flat's just been burgled by knife-wielding gangsters. And, you know, Martin turned up. And the next thing, the front page headline is Martin Comston knife terror. So he's, Perfect. he's rung me the next day and said, what are you doing, man? I wasn't even there. I was like, well, you were. <laughs> and he went, don't you turn this into a tabloid story. And again, our friendship can endure that stuff because it was actually, you know, the story's true. His involvement in it, he would argue wasn't as, as severe as the headline made out. So it's those days are the night. And listen, this is a big thing for you to think about. And in every podcast you go into, you're going to have to make a really difficult decision. Because mm. there are five questions you can ask me right now that I know that would make me feel really uncomfortable. Because I like you, I'd probably answer them. All right. And I'm not going to give you them. <laughs> because, you know, it's um, it's just going to lead to trouble for, for me and lead to trouble for you. And I, I now find myself in a position with the podcast. Like before I came in, I don't know if you heard me taking a call. That was the agent saying, you can't talk about that, Gordon. Because on the Big Jim show? On, oh no, yeah. <laughs> on your show? On my one. Yeah. But he's like, we just can't put that story in because yeah, you're, yeah. You're gonna, if you're on Good Morning Britain or Five Live, you know, does, is that a little bit, um, what's the word, incongruous with your public image? And my, also my wife, come, I go home and she's like, 
what's this story you told about? Oh, God, you know. And you're the same. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, yeah. So talking of clickbait, mm -hmm. Piers Morgan. Yeah. What's he like? And I go hot and cold with him yeah. a little bit. There's You should get him on. Oh, we'll see. I'll see put if you in touch. Come on. on. Yeah, of I'll put course. He'd come on. He'd love yeah, to I don't come know on. if he'd let me finish the question. Do you know what I mean? Because he's very yeah. bullish in terms of what he does. I mean, don't get me wrong. A bullish you, is nice. I think you could. Uh, I think if there's anybody equipped to handle him, it's you. He's very good. Yeah. He calls people. You know, calls people for up for account yeah. of themselves and stuff that they've done. Yeah. Mm. And I know he's done his own show. And I bring mm. up Piers Morgan because you work with him, right? Or do you still work with him now? No, 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 no. I've not worked well. Um, so Piers, I used to be the Bizarre Editor of The Sun, what, 2006 to 2012, and Piers was the Bizarre Editor in the early 90s. So when I got the job, I was, I think, just slightly younger than him, and he sent me an email, and I can I can repeat it to you verbatim, okay. right? So he said, Dear Gordon, you will never be as good as me. <laughs> right, that's the opening line. The next line said... But congratulations, I understand you're quite a capable man, so you'll be better than Andy Coulson, Victoria Newton, Nick Ferrari, Dominic Mohan, and all the others put together. And then the last line was, and always remember, the worst you do will be better than Rick Sky's best. Mm. Congratulations, Piers, right? So then when I turned 28, he sent me another email, and it said, hard lines, old chap. Um, you failed to break my record as the youngest editor on Fleet Street, but it was a plucky effort. All the best for the future in your career. And I just replied to him and said, yeah, but I'm never going to jail, am I? <laughs> Which he never replied never to. Replied. never replied to it. So I think with Piers, there's, he's great addition at out, but he can't take it. That seems um, like when he walked off yeah. Yeah. ITV, I, I mean, it yeah. was one of them where you could see that was in him. Yeah. But when he'd been called out. Yeah, I think he was done. Also, he was done by that point, you know, yeah. getting up at four o'clock and half past three in the morning for a long time. And and, it was during COVID, right? Yeah. Or just coming out of COVID yeah. When, yeah. when that happened. But the thing with Piers, he's a very good tabloid journalist. He has an amazing tabloid sense for what the country really cares about. He would write an article in the mail about Princess Pinocchio called Megan, and it indexed massively on the response and the comments underneath. And he knew that's my metric for the telly. So mm. if he goes on TV and calls it out, or if he writes an article about vegan sausage rolls and there's a massive response in the Daily Mail comment section, that's his own insight and segmentation, right? He knows his audience. That's his segmentation. He knows who he's talking to. He knows the levers to pull to get a reaction. And then he knows how to deliver it in a classic tabloid fashion, just on the right TV show. So he was plugged into the right amplifier with the right set of speakers at the right time to mm. make a massive noise. And, you know, fair play to him. He, he's good at what he does. My attitude is, if you don't like him, ignore him. Don't pay mm. attention to yeah, him. Yeah, that is yeah. the whole media stuff. I yeah. don't like how he speaks about Megan. I'm not a fan of Megan, by the way, mm -hmm. but he's, well, him, I know Jeremy Clarkson's very different, but... Yeah. He goes all in, like there's proper beef there. Do you yeah, know what I mean? It seems yeah. like it's almost at the point it's past trying to yeah. talk about what's topical and trying to get people to plug into. It's, it's interesting. You've got to understand where you come from. Like you're very aware that you're six foot nine in your heels, right? Mm. So you have to be careful how you deliver your, you know, your acerbic review of people because it can be quite intimidating. You've because got how I look as well. Yeah, it's mm. like fucking hell. There's a big dude being fucking aggressive here. And Piers has to be aware of the, the, I think, the volume of what he's shouting all the time and where it's coming from. And I agree with you. There is something a bit odd about a man like that talking about her obsessively. Because most people just turn around and go, fucking hell, leave it out. Mm. You know, she's a young woman. Whatever we think about her, just settle, settle down. 
let's forget Piers now. We could have mm. his moment in the in the sun on the big gym show. But for you, like some of the other people that you've interviewed, we mentioned is it Noel Gallagher? Where we were, I was asking yeah. you, and I'm a fanboy, right? Because yeah. it's like this nostalgia that I go back to. Yeah. This 90s, 2000s, the times where yeah. I wish I had them times again in this moment now. Maybe not now. Maybe 35. I'm 40 now. 35. Go back to them times yeah. where I've got a little bit of money, where I can go to these concerts. I can yeah. come out with you and party with them. Yeah. Who was the bet? Like, who's the, the I mean, one? The, Vinnie Jones we yeah, spoke about before. Yeah, I wrote his book. Yeah, you wrote Vinnie's book. I mean, that was an amazing experience because I, I, I met Vinnie because he was on, he was on a red carpet for something, and I knew quite a lot of the people around Lockstock and Two Smoking oh, Barrels, right? Was Which was a great, a great form of my when I was growing up. And uh, the the website, the Sun website, had printed a picture of Vinnie in his shorts, and he had you know he, he didn't look overweight at all, but they'd said he was fat. So he's grabbed me on the red carpet and pinned me against the wall and said, you fucking newspaper sweaty. You fucking right and saying I'm fat, you. Does this feel fat to you, you little fuck? And he's he's gone for me. And I thought I've got two options here. Like I can cower down and be a moccasin-wearing little sort of cowering student and go, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. I went, get your fucking hands off me, Vinny, you prick. Fucking how dare you come up to me? I, well, first of all, I didn't write that. And second of all, who do you think you are coming up and grabbing me like that, you and he and that's Vinny was like, all right, yeah, okay, right, let's have a chat about it. And we went and had a beer and got on great. And then I don't know how we ended up keeping in touch, but he always we always spoke and he gave me his number and all that. And we got on great. And then he phoned me one day and said, "Would you write my book?" And I said, "Well, you've done one already." He went, "Yeah, but I didn't really pay any attention when the first one was written." So I think it's got loads of shite in it. Mm -hmm. So I went to live with him for three weeks in LA and I said to the paper look I'm going to get all these other interviews when I'm there so I did all these other interviews and I went to live with Vinny in his house with his wife him and Tanya his wife who were just amazing to me it was class like and his little mate Wally Downs who was part of the crazy gang I mean he's the, probably the wildest human being I've ever met I mean, he was setting fire to places when we were out and stuff like that he's beyond crazy he turned up with 42 pairs of knockoff Pierre Cardin pants and they were what they called Pierre Cardinis or something yeah. and he just wore a <laughs> pair of pants and throw them away so anyway I wrote this book with him and like Vinny he took me you know he'd take me to play for his football team so I played for Hollywood United or Hollywood All-Stars whatever they were called and we were in Compton and he's like look sweat look sweaty and he'd say to me don't get in any trouble right because these boys these Mexican lads if you get in a scrap they're going to shoot you after, either during the game or after the game I was like yeah no problem Vinny no problem I was really nervous because I wanted to putting a good performance for him. So anyway, he's made me captain, started centre midfield, and I got booked in five minutes for <laughs> fighting a Mexican guy who had all the big facial tattoos and oh, all no. that. And Vinny's like, what did I fucking tell you, sweaty? I'm like, sorry, Vinny, sorry. And we got a penalty. He's like, you take it, sweaty, you take it. I've missed the penalty. So I've been booked, missed the penalty, got taken off after an hour. I think I did all right. Um, and then... He's like, we've got to leave before full time because you're going to get an absolute filling in. So anyway, we went back and the the um, all the lads came back to the we and I remember having a shower, and I'm quite comfortable amongst naked men. I've showered with a lot of human beings, Jim. I know it's your arena, yeah. And I'm looking around thinking I feel ridiculously self conscious here because everybody's blessed. Everybody. Anyway, it turns out... Was Vinny in there? No, he wasn't playing, so he wasn't showering. Okay. Anyway, it turns out a load of the lads that played for him were, were on contract with Brazzers. The, <sighs> you're familiar with it already? <laughs> Your reaction. Well, I, I'm going down the route. Like... So there's a geezer called Danny Mountain, who I believe is quite well known. And Danny's... Real yeah, name? That's his... Well, I believe so. He's a good footballer, actually, Danny. And there's another lad you'd know. I can't remember his name. Super famous porn star. And Vinny was like, yeah, that, that's why they're all... Doing well and you're in the shower and with I'm them. in the shower with oh, them thinking gosh. 
I don't want to be here, lads. And as the fear <laughs> kicks in, yeah, it gets even worse. Booked, humbled, nearly murdered, and then showered with men who <laughs> aren't quite from the same place. Which was the me. worst bit, the shower. shower. Yeah, of <laughs> yeah, course. Yeah, I can deal with the other I stuff. Know. But, um, you know, Vinny, so, I mean, dealing with him was fantastic. And it was really sad because his wife died and yeah, Tanya was lovely that. to me and it was horrific. Um, but, we, you know, we still talk regularly. But Noel as well, like Noel really took me under his wing in 2000 and 2004. How does Noel Gallagher take someone under his wing? He seems like the coldest yeah. guy ever. I mean, I, I am a massive, massive yeah. Oasis fan. Yeah. So before you get into it, will they get back together or not? Um, if, just, you, if, you'd me six, me, yeah. if you'd asked me six months ago. I did ask you, you said no. I said no, but and I said only if ever he wasn't with his wife. And, and they're not, not together really anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but look, I th there's a lot of lot of water to go is under it the bridge between him and his brother. Oh fuck! It is. I, I didn't know. I didn't know whether it was like this oh, big massive storm. No. They hate each other, and oh, then no, I was. No, no, no. I had no. 2020 in my mind yeah. years ago, but then the pandemic hit. That that was going to be yeah. the year yeah. that they would get back together. I mean, I like take that. I've they met, were, I love to take that. I've met Jason yeah. Orange in a coffee shop in the Cotswolds during the pandemic. Yeah, he yeah. was staying in Chipping Norton. Nice so, of course he was. Yeah, he's a lovely bloke. He yeah. wore, uh, wore Birkenstock clogs with socks. So I went down the route and everyone was laughing at me. Very different yeah. style to how he pulled he's it off. He's a good lad, Jason. He gave me a row once because uh, I got a bit laddy on a trip with him. And he's like, he's got quite a feminine voice. And he, like he has, Manchester. yeah. He said, I think you overstepped the mark over him and you were talking about girls like that. And I was like, what do you mean? Because it was a story about um, it was a story about a rock star and his wife, which I regaled, and it was a funny and saucy story, Jim. And Jason took me aside and he's like, "I think, yeah, I don't like, I don't like that stuff. It's just not for me." So I was like, Look, "I'm really sorry." And I wrote about it, and he pulled me aside and he went, "You didn't have to, you didn't have to say that in paper, you know." That's just exactly how he talks. And I was like, "All right, okay, sorry, Jason." And anyway, but I really, really love to take that comeback. They're great yeah. boys. And uh, Jason's brother owns Sale. Right, Sharks. right, does he? Yeah, Simon, yeah. So I, yeah. I messaged Simon because, I mean, it's rugby. It's the world yeah. that I'm in, but I call Simon Jason because it makes me feel close yeah. to Has he not got about seven brothers or something? There's quite a big family, aren't there? Oh, don't tell me that. I just, I just Jason, know the two. Jason's a twin. Oh, is he? Yeah. So I think there's quite a big family, I seem to remember. But mm. I, the Noel thing is, so his missus, who he's just split up from, Sarah, um, was from Edinburgh, and we got chatting at a, a do in 2004, I think it was. And I just gave him the first proper concert I went to when I was old enough to go on my own was Oasis at Irvine Beach in 1995. Mm. So I just turned 15, and I only got the ticket because my big brother had a new girlfriend, and she wanted to go to the cinema. So I got his ticket. Idiot. So we drove through Irvine Beach, and then all his mates were like, "You can piss off. You're 15. You're not hanging about with us." So I ended up in the middle of this massive oh. like pit of lunatics right as they were becoming famous. 95, right? So it was happening then. And I told him, I was like, oh, God, you know, one of the best nights of my life was at Irvine Beach. And he went, you weren't there. And I was like, I was fucking there. And then we ended up drinking that night. And he's like, listen, we're going out on Thursday. Do you fancy coming out? I was like, all right. And that was it. I was on the firm. And um, we'd, uh, again, I had some of the best nights of my life with him. Like, I went What's he like? underneath all that bravado and I mean, like some of the interviews that him and his brother did just on YouTube again popping up I mean he's, he's you've like, got to be on your fucking toes right he's a mm, formidable human being if smart you, oh god yeah, yeah sharp yeah. as a fucking tack right mm. bear in mind he had a you know really tough upbringing you know his mum worked in the Jaffa cake factory yeah. the McVitie's factory and come home with off cuts of Jaffa cakes and that's what they would eat and there were no carpets in the house at one point and his dad was tough to, you know he had to watch I mean no had a bit of a stutter I think because his dad used to leather him when he was a kid really? 
and when he gets nervous, you sometimes hear it when he's speaking. And so he's had a tough upbringing. And I always used to find it, because I'd talk about my dad and how brilliant he was, and sometimes I'd kind of pull back on it, because I don't think he had that when he was younger. But he, he's brilliant to me. He went to his 40th, which was unbelievable. His 50th, which is one of the best weekends of my life. It was just so special. What I bet it was. fucking amazing experience. Did he sing or not? Uh, no, he didn't sing. No, the Cuban brothers performed. Um, who else? Bono did a thing on stage. Really? And it was surreal because me and Kate are standing there and you've got Bono's like, are these fucking lads really from Cuba? And I'm like, no, it's from Edinburgh. <laughs> and um, Woody Harrelson's there and Madonna turned up, just gate crashed the party and Bob Geldof was there and Russell Brand. And it was an amazing, and the music was brilliant. They, they properly chucked money at it. So everyone had a great time. It was, my missus had an amazing, we had such a good laugh. And he went to his wedding as well, which ended up in the Daily Mirror because uh, I ended up in in the duck pond in the hotel and somebody reported it. Somebody phoned the Mirror and said, no Gallagher's wedding ends with idiots in the duck pond at six o'clock in the, the morning. name dropped you. No, it was me. <laughs> it was me. But you know when you do something daft when you're drunk and think, fuck, this is really dangerous. But mm. they had the netting in the duck pond and I got my ankles caught in it. And I thought, this is a classic idiot drowns it. Rockstar's wedding I mean, situation. Not Fuck. a bad way to. Are you too young? But, too young. Yeah. yeah. And you know, what, I probably would have been twenty-seven as well. You know that classic age. But um, yeah, and listen, in the last few years, I haven't seen him that much, and I, I really pissed him off on a night out, and I think he just had had enough of me because really? uh, yeah, just everybody got leathered, and I was to blame for loads of people getting on his bus and glasses got smashed and it, it was a bit of a uh, an intrusion because he was meant to go to a gig down south and suddenly he's got all these idiot Scottish strangers on his on his bus and it was my fault and his missus was livid about it because she wasn't there and anyway things went a bit cold and it does tend to happen when all, like, people end up in Siberia we call it where you're in the bad books for a while and I don't know we'll see if I emerge from the other side or not but I can't fault the guy for the amazing experiences he gave me. Like he took me t for two nights to U2 at Wembley and man, it was fucking amazing mm. standing watching U2 and he's saying, you know, this bit of this song and talking to me about, you know, when he wrote that and he um, we ended up in the dressing room after and Roman Abramovich was there and he was like, we were pissed and he said, come on, we'll go and noise up Abramovich, <laughs> which sounds like an amazing idea when you're steaming and he had this I think his wife was called Dasha Dasha Zukova and she translated for him although I'm pretty sure he could speak English and uh, I think City must have just been bought by the Sheikh Mansour and uh, Noel's gone across and everyone shakes hands and Noel says to Dasha Zukova can you tell him that Man City have got more money than his mob so she's like she giggles and she tells him and Abramovich just looks at him and goes, huh, really? And pulls a wallet from his pocket and just slapped him on the face. <laughs> but you know when a slap's more than a slap? Mm. <laughs> and I was like, fucking hell. That was pretty aggressive. Wow. At and, that point, he was one of the most powerful men in the world, wasn't he? I mean, no will probably remember this differently because we were pissed. And listen, what was it they say? Recollections may vary. Mm. But my recollection of it was a guy with an earpiece coming over saying, Mr. Smart, Mr. Gallagher, in a Russian accent. It's time. It's time. And we got moved aside. And <laughs> I've got like so many experiences. Like, And then we went back to Claridge's because you two had a suite and Noel and Sarah had fucked off home and it just left me and his mate Scully in this room with like Salman Rushdie and fucking Bob Geldof, all of you two. And I remember telling them a story and realising I had quite an impressive audience about me having a fight with Robbie Williams. And they're like, go on, tell, tell the fucking story. What happened? And I'm fucking telling this like 
holding this room and Scully's just like this is fucking surreal and I remember that night leaving Claridge's having a fire extinguisher fight with Scully down the corridors of the poshest one of the poshest hotels in London and I look back on it and think fucking what an amazing experience all of that oh, was I and mean, was, people listen to this it almost sounds like unbelievable aye and I'd love to write a book about it but again it would get me in so much trouble my, my parents would be so disappointed in me 50 that's the time is it 50 is it, yeah, is I reckon it, 50 would be alright you I, can be forgiven then because it can almost be made up, can't it? Yeah, at that yeah, point. yeah. And I like I owe, I owe an awful lot to know because he also gave me a blessing to other people. Went, ah, oh, he's all right. You can trust him. Yeah, that's brilliant. So you know that opened so many doors for me because he was, you know, he was all right. And again, like in all fairness, he didn't get a bad deal out of it, mm. right? In terms of coverage of him in the paper, and people always say Gordon Smart's, you know, up his arse and all the rest of it. But I'll, I'll be up his arse. He was sound I'll, to me. I'll, yeah, no problem. You can only treat people as they treat you. Very true. And like Bono gets a kick in, doesn't he, for being thinking he's God and all that? What a lovely human being. Mm. He's been ama- again wonderful to me. I, I just I'm fascinated by him. Like, they are one of the best bands ever. So yeah, you just got to take them as you find them, Jim. Is what I'm saying, and you'll be the same in your game. Are they getting back together? Can you see it happening? I can now, yeah. You can, yeah, possibly because yeah. of what? It, because of money, or no, just because they're absolute legends dom- together? Domestic relations. They're not the same, are they? They're not the same. Well, Noel made a really good point recently. He said, "Never say never," and a lot of bands that come back need to come back because they've got unfinished business. So the Stone Roses, for instance, never realised the potential and have done it now. You know, playing Wembley dates and Heaton Park four nights on the bounce or whatever it was. They needed to do that for their own sanity. Oasis did it. They smashed it. They, they fucking ran it. And the, I think the thought for him of going on the road with Liam again, this is just me surmising, it isn't a good experience for him. Because, like, you know, Liam, is, as No says, a man with a fork and a world of soup, you know, he gets wound up. And then, but if they did it sober, you know, no, that's not, not rock and roll, out. is it? Yeah, I just don't think that's on the agenda for those boys, are they? It's too deep in their DNA. And then, listen, would it? What would it be like to go as a punter? I don't know. I'm quite. I'm really happy with my memories of seeing Oasis. I've not seen them though. See, you've not. No, I haven't. No. See, music just YouTube. Like during the pandemic, yeah. I'd watch yeah. like Michael Jackson live, yeah. like you yeah. two live. Yeah. Picked up Whitney yeah. Houston. Yeah. Enjoyed her. I interviewed her. Live. You interviewed Whitney I interviewed Houston. Houston in LA, yeah. And I remember what a troubled story it. again. It was so sad. I got a beautiful picture with her actually, because she looked amazing, but she her nose was running and dripping on my on my page. Of course I've, it was. I've got a notepad at home with Whitney's Whitney Houston's synovial fluid on it. Was it Bolivian flu, was it? Well, I certainly wouldn't like to put it through testing, you know. It was mm. sad, though. It was sad. Oh, but that's what I she mean. was kind that, of wheeled out as well. Like, she wasn't... Comp- I don't think she was compass mentis. Mm. And that's horrible. I've had a few of them where you're thinking, this, ain't, this isn't right. This just isn't right. In what way? What do you mean? Just, like, people that are part of... I mean, like, Michael Jackson was like that in the end, wasn't he? He was just pumped full of drugs and sent I've out got, to, Sorry, to, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, and Whitney Houston, there's an army of people that were relying on her to be earning, to yeah. to s- supply their lavish lifestyle, and it's shit when that happens. It just doesn't end well, does it? Like, nah, man. It's an ugly, it's, it's that, comes, that comes back to it, like, this celebrity thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm there thinking this is amazing to be Noel yeah. or Liam Gallagher or Bono. I'm not saying that Bono's going to go that yeah. way as a rock and roll star, but you can't, there's yeah. a part of you that's like, go on. Noel said an interesting thing to me once he said that, because I was asking him about leaving Manchester and he said, you reach a point where it's no fun going out because somebody's always got a screwdriver in your ribs saying, I want tickets or we're doing the merch on your next tour. And it's fun at the moment when you're going to stuff. But when you're going to stuff and people want to swing punches at you, 
or have an argument with you because you're Jim Hamilton, you know, and they think they can have a scrap with a second row. Which, which has happened. Which has happened, right? And it's, mm. that's shite. Like, you know, I, I go out some nights and I know when the mood turns and somebody wants to have a pop because I work for the sun. And I find that really, really uncomfortable because you have to maintain a level of diplomacy and professionalism and not get into it. When sometimes you want to go, you know what, fuck off. It was a job I left. What's the fuck? Fuck off. And you can't do that. You can't do that. And it actually annoys my wife more because... Yeah, I, I take it really, I take it really personally. Sometimes don't like a sense of injustice. You know, it's funny. A, a guy said to me recently, "You go for a dinner party and you're an accountant." Somebody go, "Oh, you're boring." Fucking, why would you say that to somebody? How rude is that? You know, my brother's a dentist and he gets it all the time. Oh, you're robbing people, aren't you? you terrible human being. My brother's probably the most benevolent, generous human being on the planet, you know? He's got one of the most important jobs in the world. There's Fix, nothing worse than toothache. There's nothing worse oh, than man, toothache, And is he's there? brilliant at what he does. Like, he's so good with, you know, terrified kids and folk that have got a phobia. Like Foxy, for instance, doesn't like he's... I thought he's seen a dentist for about 40 years. Foxy's not scared of a thing. Jason oh, Fox mate. is not scared is, of mate. a thing, is he? he? He's one of the most vulnerable people I know. Yeah, and he's he brilliant. He, he wouldn't mind saying it either. And I, again, he's been a brilliant friendship for the last six years or so. Because he is, you know, I talk to him a lot about stuff that's going on. And, you know, I think I said on the podcast, I bullied him off WhatsApp because of his Neutrogena deal. Mm. And for a moment, it was like, yes, we've brought down the Special Forces dude. But I actually feel quite guilty about that now. But he's um, he's he's an interesting character, isn't he? Oh, he really is. Like that world. He came to stay with me. And I was explaining to my son, this would be four years ago. So, so this guy's coming to stay. He used to be a soldier. He did some really interesting things in Afghanistan. And he's he's got a really interesting life, Jimmy. He used to be a combat swimmer. So he's trained to fight underwater. And I was showing him some pictures and stuff. So when he turned up, my lad went outside with a spade and started digging holes. Because <laughs> it was like his way of showing, look at me, I'm a young man. I can dig things. But... um. He's an amazing athlete. But it's funny, isn't it? You've got this notion, this idea of who they are because of what they've done. And I, I love the big guy. I think he's an amazing yeah, dude. You know? I do as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I love to chat to him. It, I mean, my my birth certificate says Swindon. Right. Right, so when any, especially playing yeah. for Scotland with the accent, people are like, yeah, he's not Scottish. Born in Swindon, never been to Swindon. Ever. I was born in 1982 mm-hmm. during the Falklands. Yeah. And because my dad was based that way, uh, Hereford way mm-hmm. they didn't want any of the kids being born or have their birth certificate in Hereford uh, so it had to be dotted about so one of my good mates who actually played rugby as well like we were born in the same hospital but he was registered in Southampton or somewhere and I was registered uh, in Swindon no yeah that's fascinating yeah I know see do you find there's a strange correlation between the athletes you knew in sport and then the personalities because again when you get to know somebody that you recognise from TV or performing or seeing them, and then you meet the real person, there's this kind of strange moment when you get to see their their fallibilities or vulnerabilities mm. or, or strengths and weaknesses. Mm. And like you're an example of that. It's like you were just this big fucking monster of a guy that was on the pitch, like ragdolling folk around. And I meet you, and you're this softly spoken, interesting character. It's like Rory Lawson, you know. I got to know Rory really well, and the Evans brothers, and all that. And it's really interesting when you have a perception of an athlete or a celebrity, and then you get to, like, no, it was the same. You know, I've, I've had these incredibly special moments when you're just speaking to you you and him and you get to know the real person and then he's the rock star. And you just reminded fucking hell, this guy's written Wonderwall and mm-hmm. Don't Look Back in Anger and Acquiesce and Talk Tonight and all these amazing songs you love, Master Plan. And you forget, you're like, oh, fuck, I better be deferential to this amazing cat. And you think, actually, I've done all right. You know, I've, I've lived a bit. 
Mm. And do you belong in that arena? I don't know. I think everybody does. And yeah. you, you know, I'm sure if you arranged, you know, your dream table and dream guests, I reckon two or three of them wouldn't be people in the public eye. It's mm. normally your granddad, isn't it? Or mm. somebody who was at school or, you know, a leading light in your life. And I find those folk just as interesting as the people I've interviewed. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's interesting you say that you, you pass a judgment on someone, like the amount of people that not so much now, but mm -hmm. when I retired and was doing the podcast, they'd come up and be like, you're actually all right. I thought you were right, Ken. Because of the way that I used to play. Like yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. fighting, basically. Yeah. That's what I did. And yeah. you had a face like thunder. Yeah. And you weren't that overly yeah. personable. That was me. I'm talking about myself in the third person. Owen Farrell was the same. People pass judgment because mm -hmm. he doesn't like the media, because yeah. he looks stern. Yeah. He looks miserable. Yeah. He's hard. Yeah. But he's not away from the pitch. He's not, but that is how... Yeah. He fronts it. What's that Billy Connolly quote? Never judge a man until you've walked in a mile in his shoes. And anyway, you'll be a mile away with his shoes on. So it doesn't really fucking matter. What a legend. He's Scotland produce some absolute legends, don't they? They do. Like, they really they do. do. They like, do. it's just, I mean, I live in Scotland now. I just mm -hmm. love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. It's... I'm very grateful. I mean, Manny from the Stone Roses always said, you can't ride two horses with one arse, right? But I live between London, Manchester and Scotland. But the most comfortable I am on the horse is is at home, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. you, I don't know. They, listen, I I love Britain. I think it's fucking amazing. And it's funny when you were talking about accents earlier, because I feel like I've got an affinity with Geordies and Manx. And but then I've met some folk from uh, the southwest recently who are fucking great characters. And there's something about the mischief in that accent that you mm. just think this is going to be fun and games. I just you're the same as me. I think you love people, and um, that that's you know my motivation to crack on in my career if I can just. Keep find, keep being uh, interested and inquisitive and and interested in people, you'll be all right. Yeah, well, your podcast is great. I'm not just saying Thanks that because you're that, here. Um, yeah. I, I think it's great how you're with Martin and yeah. you've got mates coming in, similar to what yeah. I've been doing with Goody on the rugby pod. Yeah. It's bouncing off people. It's genuine. Yeah. You're laughing. You know, you both lived wonderful, I mean, wonderful he's, lives. What a life he's had. But it's nice to have a cerebral conversation as well, Jim, and yeah. talk about other stuff because with him, you can't, was he just says, birthday care pish. Every time I say something that's bordering and nonsensible, fucking birthday care pish. Um, but that's a front with him because he's actually quite a sensitive. He's a good I can't believe, yeah. couldn't believe. You know where I'm going with this? Yeah, I do. I know exactly. Scottish accent. I know. Oh, I know. Because he lived with me. He thrown me. He says he didn't, but I'm sure he lived with me when he was doing the addition for that. He might have been living with a guy. But, you know, line, but, of, line of Duty, line one of, of the Duty. most watched yeah. BBC programmes, right? The biggest, I think it's the biggest drama of the last so 25 years. good. Yeah. And yeah. he's a cock, fucking Cockney. He's um, Is estuary, he Cockney? estuary accent, yeah. So it's like a Kent, like a Dartford accent. So he used to listen to Matt Morgan and Russell Brand's podcast to tune into The Voice. And he was he moved in with me, and I think it was the first series was around about that time, and he'd sit and talk in that weird accent. Really? Because he did a film called Piggy with Paul Anderson, who's Arthur Shelby. He's a mate of ours. Really? Yeah. So tell me he's a brummy. Paul Anderson. He's a fagging cop. No, I have a follow him on social media. He's a spiv. He used to be a ticket tout. So mm. I remember him when he used to flog tickets. Of course he was a day. ticket tout. Of course some, he was. It's a great story. So Arthur Shelby, Paul Anderson, Boise, great lad. Boise. He um Is he a good lad? Oh, he, he looks like what a legend. A fucking guest he would be. But Boise, um he was selling tickets and a guy was like a, I think he was a drama teacher at Rada and he said, You should be an actor, son. I'll get you an addition. And that was it. 
one of the best shows, Peaky yeah. Blinders. Are. You know, Compton. I think it was in the podcast. Yeah, I, 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 he, he auditioned yeah, he for Tommy for Shelby. Yeah. He, he, yeah. Well, and there's only one Killian. Tommy Shelby. He knows oh, that, though. My yeah. mate lived next door to Killian Murphy. He's fascinating. He never Park. does a selfie. He will never do a selfie. He doesn't with do him. any media. He's, no. Again, I like it. It's the I myth. Love, imagine the being good enough not to have to pedal that shit. Oh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? He's so fit. It's like Daniel Day Lewis. You know, when did you ever read about Daniel Day Lewis? You know, when did you ever read about Killian? You never really, he does a bit on Six Music, plays some brilliant music. He's just a class act, isn't he? Yeah, he did an interview recently for his new movie. I can't think what it's called. Mm -hmm. And and he talks about it then, doesn't he? He talks about him not doing anything. Doesn't do anything, does he? Oh, he lives next door to my mate. So one of my best mates in Queen's Park. Yeah, yeah. And I'm involved. uh, I own a pub in Queen's Park called Wolfpack Lager. And uh, he'd come in, have a drink and stuff like that. And he said, you've been in there with him. I was like, yeah, but that was before Peaky Blinders, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> well, do you not remember it was at 28 Days Later? I love that film. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant music on it as so. well. Who are the most talented before we go? Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse. Out of actors, oh, musicians. She's just unbelievable. Like, what a, an incredible talent. What a sad yeah, story. Back to Black. What That, that album. Yeah, everyone speaks about that. Just... Uh, off Globally. The, off Any, the yeah. scale genius. That, mm. I mean, just beyond brilliant. And would she have written... Oh, she, I think she would have been the most, most of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she worked with people like Mark Ronson and Salem. Yeah, so she'd Mark Ronson surname. was in some of her yeah, music as well. But she wrote the lyrics. It was all from her heart. The, the, the soul of those albums were, it was all about her. She was incredible. It's crazy, um, these people, the, yeah. like the talented, like Stephen King. I saw someone reading his book on the mm-hmm. tube. Mm-hmm. Massive, thick thing, right? Yeah. And all the stuff around Stephen King, he wrote them books while he was high. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of the most creative Yeah, it's people. funny, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like, there's a lot of people I totally admire. Like, Irvin Welsh, I think, is just a genius. You know, creating train spotting. And he, he, I just think what he writes speaks to me in a different way. Mm-hmm. I love his books. I devour every word. There's another Scottish author called John Niven who I absolutely idolise. His Scott, books okay. are phenomenal, yeah. Um, but talent and, you know, again... I love the Shane Meadows stuff. Stevie Graham, the actor who was Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire. Um, yeah, he was great in This Is England. He did that great um, Boiling Point recently. I mean, everything he does. He was great in Snatch, wasn't he? What a talent. Them he movies, yeah. like Lockstock, Snatch. Yeah. There's a bit of Green Street as well. Yeah, the yeah. hooliganism one. Yeah. Yeah, I it's funny that like, the people I admire are the ones that you think. Have I put Green Street with Snatch? Yeah. Did I just yeah, do that? No, that. Let, let's. Do you yeah. see how I moved on? Yeah, quickly. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I'm thank, thankful it's that you right. did. So it's we'll keep right. that in, but that is a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah. I mean, music. Green Street. I went to watch it with the missus. That was our first date movie. Elijah, Elijah Wood, wasn't it? Mm. First film after Lord of the Rings, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, Charlie, was Charlie Hunnam in that, I think, was he? Yeah, yeah, he, he was, was in Biker yeah. Grove originally. Yeah. I, 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 I just find it amazing meeting incredibly talented people. And, but Amy Winehouse yeah. is the top yeah, of that list. I, I, I think she probably is, actually. Of all my time in, in showbiz, she was probably the one that I thought had the most natural talent. Mm. Um, still sad about that. You know, she was brilliant. I went to her funeral, um, which was a, a really, really unusual experience. You know, I'd never been to a Jewish funeral before. And you know, it's like at a Scottish wake, the first thing you do is have a drink. Mm. And they had a table in the corner with loads of shots on it, different spirits. So I went straight across and had a shot and everyone was like, <gasps> and you're meant to do it as you leave. Um, and the food, the food at the funeral, I've never seen anything like it. I think it was up in Golders Green from from memory. And um, oh, they're just so sad. And obviously there's a lot of people going, why is the guy from the sun here? And um, I worked with a brilliant journalist called Sean Hamilton and Sean was her boss because she was a showbiz journalist at a company called When when she was trying to be a singer and she was writing. 
And um, he took us out for dinner one night in Camden when I first moved to London and Amy was a waitress in the restaurant and she was walking around the restaurant singing. And I remember he said, oh, that's Amy. She used to work at WEN. She's a brilliant, brilliant jazz singer. And I remember she came and sang at the end of the table and it was a guy, I was with Joe Mott and Sean. And the guy, Joe Mott, he dated uh, Sarah Harden from Girls Aloud. He was a showbiz editor at The Star. Sean and I worked at The Sun together. And I remember them saying, she's going to be amazing. And it's funny... And you have those moments in your career where people say, look out for this act or look out for that act. Like, there's this band called Arctic Monkeys coming out of Sheffield. They're going to be pretty good. There's this band from Leicester called Kasabian. We should maybe start writing about them. I remember the first time somebody said, have you heard about the Libertines? And I was like, no, these guys look a bit mad in their military outfits. And, and you know, that's that's kind of, that was my job for a long time. That was chaos. It was chaos, That yeah. whole Kate Moss, yeah. Pete, Pete Doherty, Doherty yeah. Amy Winehouse. Yeah. Like madness. I saw yeah. Pete Doherty in the media. He's looks like he's eating three of them, hasn't he? But he looks... Similar background to you, though. His dad was a Scottish mm. sergeant major, military ba uh, background, dragged all around Europe, including Germany. And so yeah, I think I there's a lot Germany, of yeah. daddy issues there, you know? Yeah. Um, which explains a lot, but... He's living in France now, isn't he? I think but, so, yeah. yeah. Talented boy. Oh, that's Incredible. everything you read, everything yeah. you see. Yeah. Hated me working for The Sun. Um, As in you, me personally, because you, yeah, because I work for the sun, yeah. just because you work yeah, for the sun, yeah. yeah. My mate Sean, he wrote loads about um, about the Libertines. I mean, the pictures yeah. there. I mean, it, you yeah, talk about dark. like death. Yeah, it was mental. But that's the mad thing, right? And I think maybe that was the reason I did all right at the paper is that you know I didn't grow up buttoned up the back. You know, I had quite a, an interesting life. You know, the place I lived in Kinross was a quite an interesting combination of people. You know, there was um, you know there were big issues when I was growing up with drugs. And um, it still upsets me now, thinking about the 90s. You know, one of my dear pals from when I was a wee boy died when we were 18, a guy called Fraser Brunton. And I never forget Fraser. And he was he was having trouble with drugs and he hanged himself. So we were at a funeral when we were 18 because of a, a drug's death. And I often think about him, like wonder what would have happened with his life had he not mm. passed away when we were kids. And, you know, quite a lot of mad stuff happened when we were growing up. You know, I was talking to my wife about it. I said, I'm coming to see you and, you know, talking about my history and my stories and our background and growing up and I'd remembered recently because you know it's just, I don't think I've ever really properly talked about it but I had this mad kind of fell in love with this girl called uh, Julia Dawes in Scotland when I was about 15 and um, the first week I kissed her she went to the ice factory on the Friday night took ecstasy and died but this was before mobile phones or anything so just I remember she wrote her number on my arm and uh, it wiped off so I couldn't phone her house but I was meant to go out that weekend with her. I think I was 15 or 16, maybe 16 actually. And then I only found out because how else would you find out in 1996? I thought, God, she never got back in touch. She never phoned me. I wonder what happened there. And then found out in the local newspaper about a week later that she'd died. And uh, that was an ecstasy death. And it's interesting because Leah Betts, you know, everyone still remembers her name, but in Scotland, Julia Dawes. And, you know, if you think of those sliding doors moments in your life, you know, what would have happened if I'd gone out that night? You know, you just don't know. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that helped me in my career is that, in, same as you, you know, we, we grew up in a fairly big crowd of characters and it teaches you a certain level of um, resilience and toughness because you've you got, you got to survive, right? And where I grew up, there's just always a massive mob of lads. And the 90s as well, you know, the culture of ladism and all that, you had to be, you had to stand up for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very grateful for those characters, even the ones I didn't get on with when I was a teenager, because they've kind of made me who I am and tough enough to deal with what's chucked at me. A life well lived. 
And only, Aye. what, 42? 42, 42, yeah, of yeah. course. It's not even the end of the beginning, Jim. I know. I'm excited about the next bit well, now. Please tell me that, because I've just turned 40 and I'm a little bit oh, mate, depressed listen, about it. I had a vasectomy, turned 40, three birthdays in lockdown, lost my job, <laughs> my dog died. It's been a fucking hard three years, mm. you know? But you can't get into the habit of poor me, because we live in a world now where the news agenda is fucking fairly relentlessly negative. So we've got to find the positives, right? And let's be, we're here, right? Give yourself a fucking shake and it's there for the taking. I've been there when it's great and the going's good and money's coming in and life's brilliant and I've been there when it's shite. And somebody said to me, you know, Winston Churchill uh, said, when you're going through hell, don't stop. Keep going. Just keep going. Yeah. Keep going. And that's what I'm trying to do, Jim. Yeah. Well, you certainly are. It's been amazing to have you on oh, and just Thanks to have a break from rugby and as I, I say we were getting onto your podcast a plug I mean you're yes have got a much bigger following I'm sure in that space and some of the guests that you we could have to come on get. hours now don't oh, you I'd look, hey get me on I don't know what I could talk about I could talk about some of the stories I in, love the I stories know, yeah when I trashed a hotel room in Chile <laughs> or I shat on me mate like whatever you want but genuinely yeah. mate to have a little Thank bit you. of a break from rugby and to be yeah. able to talk to you so Restless Restless Natives, natives based on the 80s film which you should go and check out it's an mm. amazing film soundtrack from Big Country but we're going to go on tour hopefully this year we're going to put a festival on if Martin gets his finger out up in the fringe or not are you gonna... no no um we're going to do i think we're, we've got some we've got an offer oh. this week we got an offer this week okay we'll to do it, a very it. exciting venue so yeah we're, we're working out how we do a live show which might have to involve jim hamilton ragdoll and compton around yeah i'm happy to do it i'd love to and yeah. only if he speaks in his kent accent he can do that for you yeah. perfect gordon yeah, mate, thanks for having me absolutely classy.